And good evening, everyone, or good morning, or good afternoon, whatever the case may be, around this rotating globe in a system of rotating other globes, big and small. You know, they found out, and this is really, really kind of whacking them out, that of all the solar systems we've now found with Kepler and TESS and the ground-based observatories and ultimately uh, uh, Webb, ultimately, it looks like this solar system is unique. Let me say that again. In a solar system-rich environment, the galaxy, the Milky Way, with something like a trillion suns, and we now know that every one of those has at least one or two planets. That's the extrapolation from the statistics of the Kepler and TESS missions, which are the space telescopes which are looking and cataloging extrasolar planets orbiting stars thousands of light years away. In all of those thousands and thousands of star systems where planets enjoin orbits around their parent star, the configuration of this solar system is unique. Let me say it again for all you Copernicanites out there. The solar system by modern 21st century astronomical science, the best that we've got is unique. And this is a real problem for the theorists, the mainstream astrophysicists, the cosmologists, the planetary scientists, all those people who have spent their lives trying to figure out, you know, how mediocre we are, meaning how much this environment is replicated all across this galaxy and all the other galaxies, I mean trillions. And now, out of thousands that have been probed in detail, and many thousands more that are kind of waiting in the wings to be tabulated through the algorithms and programs that are being used by all these professionals to tabulate extra solar planetary systems, we're it. We're unique. I mean, this is so outrageous and should be, you know, Hollywood sign high headlines. Because how many times in school, how many times in reading history, how many times in learning science did you learn, oh, the Earth is an average planet in an average solar system, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And yet that does not seem to be the case. Which, of course, raises some really interesting questions that I'm hoping to get into tonight with my guests, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert. And believe me, the question and answer to this little now known fact, there are no such things as alternative facts in astronomy, it either is there or it's not, the answer to why we are unique Maybe some of you will be a bit uncomfortable as we describe and explain and elucidate the potential reasons for our uniqueness. Remember, we've been sold for the last hundred years or more that we're just average. Turns out we're not. Scientifically, we're not. Now, what does that do to, well, let's not you know leave it on the cutting room floor. Uh, for you who are new to the show, uh, we have a feature called Radio with Pictures, which allows you to actually follow along with some of the links 
and imagery and other things that are posted that are relevant to the show. And of course, you can always access them uh, freely during the replay of all the archive shows from Club 19.5. And most people have a lot more time when they're not listening to the show. Uh, there are some things you're going to want to look at right away, other things you can defer to a second or a third hearing, because these are these are admittedly very densely packed programs, very admittedly. Okay, so if you're new to the show, you go to the homepage, which is theothersideofmidnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner, which is very near the top, the hyperdimensional reason why everything is hitting the fan right now with Levine and Lambert as my guest tonight. So you're now going to hit that banner. That will take you to the guest page. And right under the guest page, you'll see fast links to items. You click on my name. It's right under to listen to the show. Click on Richard. That will take you to the section of radio pictures where we have items with images and links and all that good stuff. First item tonight, of course, is we're going to update again the web telescope. Uh, As you know, in three days, this is Sunday night, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the 12th of July, the Webb Telescope people are planning to release their first tranche of stunning in-depth color imagery taken by the world's unequivocally largest space telescope, which has a mirror, primary mirror, which collects the light uh, and infrared energy is light. As are gamma rays, they are light too just of a very short and high energy wavelength. Anyway, the Webb telescope will collect its light with a 21 inch, 21, I keep doing that, 21 foot wide mirror. See, every time I say that, I think of the 200 inch, which is 16 feet. So my mind kind of goes weird sometimes. Anyway, um, that mirror has produced an image which we have assembled tonight, which is sitting right there as part of item number one. This is a mosaic of 72 little thumbnail postage stamp size pictures taken by the fine guidance sensor of the Webb telescope. This is the gadget which literally will keep Webb pointed at a particular field of of stars and galaxies for hundreds or thousands of hours if necessary from its halo orbit at the L2 point about a million miles behind the Earth, away from the sun. And this image, these 72 images, were taken over a span of 32 days, both numbers of which are not accidental. I mean, these people can't do anything in space without a ritual. And tonight we're going to talk about those numbers, 32 and 72, and how they relate to the overall theme of uh, what we're going to explore tonight, which Why is everything happening at once and why is all kinds of weird, bad stuff happening? Why now? Why not, you know, long time ago? Why not wait? Why not in a thousand years? Anyway, that's part of what we're going to talk about. Uh, Item number two, which kind of plays into this in a way. Last year, the UN came up with a report which really, as the headline says, should have all of us really terrified because... The biggest single impediment to continued life on Earth is the inexorable turning the heat up on the frog in the pot on the stove so that he or she does not know they are being boiled to death until 
it happens. That's the, what's going on with the climate of the planet. It is warming up. Every measure, it is warming up. Um, and that report, of course, is a very important milestone because it basically says that we've got between now and the next 10, maybe 15 years to do something really significant or we will be into what with Venus would be called the runaway greenhouse mode. And we'll take the time some night to describe all that. So um, I try not on this show to present problems that do not have concomitant potential resolutions. And, you know, a lot of people have talked for a long, long time about uh, uh, global warming, about the effects of climate change. This now, this development I'm going to relate in the next few minutes, links item number one and item number three. Because as part of the web telescope deployment, you also know that Waiting in the Wings is the uh, first unmanned mission back to the moon called Capstone uh, in a very long time. It is following a very lengthy, leisurely, um, neo-rectilinear orbit, which will take it almost a million miles beyond the moon and then swing it back. And you can see that in the illustration I had for the uh, capstone mission in last night's show. But this is all part of a much larger matrix. Stone is a forerunner for the Gateway Lunar Space Station, which will orbit the moon in this very peculiar orbit, which is basically comes within a thousand miles of the lunar south pole and within 43,500 miles of the lunar north pole. So if you look at the moon on a, on a full moon night, you can imagine that this, um, this mythical orbit, this invisible orbit of the uh, capstone mission and then the gateway space station in a couple of years will basically be standing straight up when you look at a full moon uh, on the meridian any night with the closest point being about halfway um, from the center of the moon above the south pole that's about a thousand miles since the diameter of the moon is about 2000 and then the orbit will be a very long ellipse that will take them seven days to track from the low point thousand miles over the moon to the low point again thousand miles over the moon over the south pole seven days seven tetrahedral days gosh i wonder who figured that one out anyway that's all part of a larger matrix which is the artemis missions which are currently uh, uh being prepped for the the real mission the first unmanned sls orion uh european uh, um, service module mission sometime in late August, maybe early September, which will test the entire infrastructure minus gateway of taking Americans, men and women, back to the moon for an eventual landing in uh, 2025. I think that's the new target date because they, they can't make the 2024 target date. Too many problems, too little money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Familiar song. But it's all hinging on the success of Capstone and so that set of missions opens up all kinds of interesting potentials because for an awful lot of people who basically say, well, what good is space flight? What good is space travel? Ignoring the fact of SpaceX and, and Starlink and GPS and, you know, um, inventories of crops, weather satellites, incredible infrastructure uh, in space, which is minding, you know, social media allowing networks to 
you know, transmit messages anywhere on the planet in uh, milliseconds. All of that would not be occurring without space. So that takes us to item number three. MIT this week announced, after some very interesting study, that they've come to the same conclusion that I have and a number of other independent uh, researchers, namely that the global warming problem for the planet cannot be solved by staying on the planet, that the ideal place to solve the global warming climate change model of increasing temperatures and increasing increasing melting of ice and CO2 and more carbon into the atmosphere released from underground uh, clathrate sinks, all of that bad stuff. The simple way to solve the problem is to externally cool the earth. If the earth is trapping too much heat, the answer, like any cook in the kitchen knows, is to turn down the heat on the stove so that you don't boil dinner. Well, up until this MIT study, apparently we were kind of lone voices in the wilderness because I've been saying for years that the ultimate answer to uh, global climate change is not reducing carbon emissions because you can't. You know, people need to eat, people need to live, people need to cook, people need energy. And at the moment, we're stuck on the fossil fuel loop. So what is the way out of the box? Well, MIT this week announced, that's item number three, that the way out of the box is to basically blow a lot of space bubbles in a very large, and I mean really very large spacecraft, flimsy, tethered together with wire in space and zero gravity. And if you blow enough bubbles and you do the proper things to them, they can be interposed between the Earth and the sun, and they can act like a pair of Polaroid sunglasses. They can basically cut down the energy that the Earth intercepts from the sun, which, of course, will cool it, which means the trapping of heat will turn from a bad thing to a good thing because it gives you a margin of reserve, kind of like putting an extra blanket on in the middle of a three-dog night. That's an arcane reference you need to look up. Okay, that's, that's homework for the audience. What's a three-dog night? And I don't mean just the song. Anyway, so they are thinking of doing this. This idea actually came from a guy named Robert Angel, who was a uh, brilliant optician uh, working in Arizona at the University of Arizona, who produced some of the most amazing uh, telescopes on Earth, creating big, big, big mirrors for big, big, big telescopes, much bigger than the 200-inch on Mount Palomar. And then one day, Robert Angel apparently was thinking how to tackle the global warming problem. And he realized that if he could create optical technology in space, you could basically reflect away or absorb the energy of the sun that you didn't want to hit the earth. And all it would take would be building a very, very, very large megastructure or several in space. The calculation, which if you go to that link to MIT, there's all the data that you'd want to know at that link. They're talking about building a structure in space roughly the size of the area of Brazil. I'll say it again. They're talking about building in zero gravity a megastructure in space that ultimately would have the physical size, the dimensions of the nation of Brazil. 
and you would position it between the Earth and the Sun. Well, is there a kind of a stable region of space between the Earth and the Sun where this object, which would be built obviously with robots and uh, 3D CAD and all that other really cool stuff, that you could build it in space where it would stay between the Earth and the Sun? And the answer is yes. It's called the L1 position. If Hubble, uh, Hubble, if Webb is at the L2 position, a million miles behind the Earth, the L1 position is about a million miles in front of the Earth, between the Earth and the Sun. And if you build this super, super big mega structure of literally hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of bubbles blown out of materials that you mine in space so you don't have to lift them up and out of a gravity field and all that stuff, you can create basically a pair of Polaroid sunglasses in orbit a million miles away from Earth toward the sun, and it will allow you in real time to modulate up and down very precisely the amount of energy that is transmitted through this mega lens. You can see a kind of an illustration of what it might look like there as it uh, occludes part of the edge of the sun's disk. And it's all with no impact on the Earth itself. Because as with any system of engineering on this scale, feedback loops would be really important. You don't want to, you know, block enough sunlight from the Earth to cause an ice age. And you certainly don't want to block too little so that we continue with the global warming, which is going to ultimately do us all in. So it's a happy medium, but it's all eminently controllable. And all it takes is some major mature infrastructure in space to carry this out. Which brings us back to SLS, Artemis, returning to the moon, uh, moon base. I mean, you could use an O'Neill system. You could basically mine the moon for the materials and slingshot it to the L1 position by means of a um, accelerator, a linear rail accelerator on the moon. Uh, the design plans are out there. Just Google them. So if we really open space up in a big industrial way, not only do all the other little problems of living in space and you know, exploring the moon and creating materials that are uniquely uh, adapted to their space uh, origins, meaning materials and electronics and gadgets that cannot be made on Earth, turns out you literally can modulate the entire climate of the Earth with current technology. All it requires is a bit more scale, and that's just money. Think of how much money the planet will save by not having to constantly uh, confront these super storms, these super fires, all of the uh, ancillary things that come along with global warming. Okay, um, that feeds directly into my conversation tonight with my guest, because as you, as you may have noted in the promo that I wrote, there's a whole bunch of things that are basically occurring right now on the planet. And all of them have one way or another, their solution with either infrastructure in space or actually um, thinking about what happens to planetary objects and other large masses which orbit in space and orbit along 
with us. So without further ado, let me introduce my uh, first guest of the evening. Rick Levine is a professional astrologer, has been since 1976. He has become a respected leader in the global astrological community. He is past president of the Washington State Astrology Association, co-founder of StarIQ.com, a founding trustee of Kepler College, and co-author of eight years of Barnes & Noble's annual Your Astrology Guide. Rick once wrote a daily horoscope column for nearly 17 years, delivered via the Internet to literally millions of readers per day through tarot.com. His expanded daily Planet Pulse is still available on Instagram at Rick Levine Astrologer and on Facebook at facebook.com slash Rick Levine Astrologer dot. He's the subject of a DVD, Quantum Astrology, Science, Spirit, and Our Place in the Cycles of History. His internet videos reach tens of thousands of people every month. And in 2018, Rick was awarded the prestigious International Astrologer of the Year Award by the Krishnamurti Institute of Astrology in India. On a recent lecture tour of Istanbul, Rick was awarded the coveted Fomalat Award for Astrological Excellence by the Turkish School of Astrology. And you can start out, Rick, by telling everybody what is Fomalat. Well, it's actually Fomalat. And oh. Fomalat is one of the four Babylonian watchers. The Babylonians had four stars, one for each season. Um, and the United States or the international astrology community um, every four years gives out an award called the Regulus Award. Regulus is one of the four watchers. So Turkey responded a few years ago and began giving out this national award based upon it's just a recognition of an international astrologer who comes to their country and blows everyone's mind. That was me. So are these the stars <laughs> that are closest to the four points? No. no um, well, they're... It's a combination of closest and brightest. They're not necessarily the closest. They're, the, they're easy to find. Um, and, um, so do, and, do, and do they the, roughly mark the solstices and the equinoxes? That's fine. No, they actually roughly mark the in-between points, the cross corners, oh, roughly. Oh, roughly. But they're not exact. But there is, I mean, the watcher of the summer um, is Regulus, and it's at one degree of Virgo, which is basically um, two-thirds of the way through the summer. And this goes by uh, astrological uh, uh, cycles that are not sidereal, that are something else. And well, the actual Ulfic stars are sidereal because, because um, sidereal means, as you know, of the stars. It means stars. So, yeah, when one is locating um, you know, a, a star, it by nature is sidereal, However, it gets a little bit tricky as to what, what grid we map it on. And That's, probably, that was where um, I was going, because Regulus is a bright star in Leo. And well, I, actually, and I, actually, Richard, it was up until a few years ago at 29 degrees of Leo, but it precessed um, into, uh, in, into Virgo. Because the Earth wobbles, as you know, and the precession is one degree every 72 years, which means that the fixed stars don't really appear fixed against the seasons and so that was a big deal when when astrologers had to realize that uh that 
these fixed stars, uh, Regulus most recently, has in fact, from the Earth's point of view, changed signs, but that's just because of the wobble of the Earth. And the way that it's kind of accounting. So let's, let's, let's go back to the big picture, okay? In, in some of the notes you sent me, you had yeah. a very good idea because the foundation of astrology as a science, as a hyper-dimensional science, yes. rests on the idea that we are within wheels, within wheels, within wheels. That all of these masses whirling around us and we whirling around them have a measurable scientific effect in the field. Uh, the Russians call it the torsion field. The West called it the ether for many, many decades until they kind of abolished it by fiat. Uh, the science re- really says there's, a, yeah. there's an ether. So mm-hmm. we're looking at how this field, this matrix, this, this gossamer web that we're all stuck in as 3D conscious beings, how it is modulated ratcheted up and down, changes over time with all of these individual cycles, both individually and then all together, like this huge melange of a whole orchestra, all flaring its own notes and its overtones and undertones and all that. So I thought it was a really good idea when you said, why don't we start by talking about the bodies we're referring to and the Mm -hmm. cycles that they take us through and then how that affects life as opposed to Sagan's perception that it doesn't, life on planet mm-hmm. Earth. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, there are um, things that we know, and then there are things that we don't know. Um, if I said, can you name all the countries in the world and their capitals, you'd probably go, I don't think I know all that. But you know that you don't know that. The problem comes when we don't know what we don't oh, know. Oh, this is, this is your Rumsfeld problem. Remember <laughs> when he said there are known unknowns? Oh, yeah. And then yeah, there yeah, are unknown yeah. unknowns? Well, okay, I hate to be compared to, to uh, <laughs> Rummy Dumsfeld, but, or whatever his name No, but Ronald, the right. fact of the matter is that there are cycles that we see. You know, we, we, uh, we're coming into a full moon in a couple of days, and and if you look up at the sky, you go, wow, that moon's big. I don't think it was that big a few days ago. And we kind of tune into that cycle of the new moon to the full moon. Um, the seasons, you know, right now in the northern hemisphere, we're in the season of the summer. And we know that. And we know that every year there are four seasons. This is a cycle we see. However, these high-frequency meaning cycles that happen every month or every year, astrologically are not the things that we're talking about here. We're talking about the cycles that you don't see unless someone points them out to you. And then you go, oh my God, I never noticed that. You know, uh, there's a concept, you know, like like if something is hermetically sealed, right? You, You know what that means? Well, it sounds like it goes back to Hermes. I'm quite wondering how he got into the vacuum business, but go ahead. Ah, okay. No, that, that's, that's great. Because normally, hermetically sealed means that it is sealed to- so tightly that there's no way in and no way out. Right. Whether it's a vacuum or a pressure or just for cleanliness, hermetically sealed means that it is a complete seal. However, 
um, Hermes as the keeper of the secrets, going back to, you know, Thoth or Hermes Trismegistus, Hermes the thrice great back in, in the Egypt period of time. No ego there. <clears throat> <laughs> that's right. Um, but the thing about, about something that's hermetically sealed, a disk drive, you know, is hermetically sealed. But if you I'll, know I'll, the I'll secret, tell you what, hang on, because we're at the bottom of the hour. And I okay. just could not resist playing this song. This is Vera Lynn from the 1940s. In honor of MIT, guys, pay attention. We need those bubbles. Pretty bubbles in the air. They fly so high. Nearly reach the sky. Then, like my dream, they fade and die. Fortunes always hiding. I've looked everywhere. I'm forever blowing bubbles. The other side of midnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Listen while you travel or as an environment to your endeavors. Eight cents an episode, two and a half cents per hour of content. The other side of midnight.com. I'm keeping keep. I'm building And welcome back everyone to this Sunday night edition of The Other Side of Midnight. This is a blast from the past. Very famous singer in the 1940s, Marilyn. I'm forever blowing bubbles. MIT, pay attention. You could have a theme song. The idea is so mind-bogglingly simple. It's brilliant. It's elegant. It's classic. It can work. All we need now is a little money. So, Rick, as we fade away with Vera Lynn in the background, blowing her bubbles into the L1 position, let's go back to planetary and cosmic cycles. So we were talking about Hermes. 
Yes. And and the, the thing is that the secret traditions all have something in common, and that is two people can look at the same thing and see something completely different. And the tradition has to be passed along by an initiate secret communication. And so a hermetically sealed uh, chamber is one that there is a way in or out, but you don't know what it is unless you know the secret. Hmm. Unless you know what's invisible, otherwise it's otherwise you miss it. I mean, this goes back to the Pythagorean order, you know, the secret order that in that unless you were in the order, you didn't see the same things that other people who were in the secret order saw. Two people could look at a tree and one of them can see that the tree is this magic miracle of the universe, and the other one can say the tree's in the way. <laughs> yes, about to fall on the house during the next hurricane. Right. So the point here is that astrologically, there are cycles that we don't see unless someone points them out to us, and then we go, holy crap. I had no idea. Okay, for us because to, once you see them, you can't unsee them. For us to see a cycle, it can be something visible like the moon. You look at the moon, every night is 13 degrees different. It waxes and wanes, it gets bigger and smaller. It moves across the sky. So that cycle is very obvious. Very but, obvious because it falls within a range of repeatability, and that's how we measure cycles. That's how science measures cycles. It measures a frequency by measuring the distance or the time between two peaks in a wave, and then that becomes a measurable item that they can then predict into the future. The but question becomes, go ahead. Well, astrology is linked, uh, at least as my understanding, limited though it may be, to the visible movements of these objects, which the astrologers say, impact, change, influence, shape life on earth. And so you can correlate changes in people's lives or society's lives or nations' lives with these visible cycles. But exactly, what, but, except but, they're not always visible. I, because, I'm going there next. What okay, if, I'll be quiet. What, what if um, there are things going on in the dark out there that are cyclic that are basically modulating the physics, but the only way you're going to detect them is by looking at the at the victim. I'm sorry, the uh, the chief. I'm I'm sorry, the 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 people <laughs> yeah. uh, who are affected, and you can only measure the invisible by the visible effect on this population. But given the fact that there's so many things working to tug people into all kinds of cycles and behavior and repetitive motions. How do you isolate ah, something the many, that's invisible? The many body problem. Yeah. Yes. That's exactly the problem. It's, you, you can't isolate them. And this is really why, although many people who practice astrology would call it a science, it's why it's difficult for it to make that leap into science because you can't take the active ingredient out and just measure it, it is always impacted by everything else in the field, as you alluded to in your, in, in your introduction. Yeah, I think that was a very, you know, well-said introduction. I think you called it a gossamer web. You know, if a fly lands on a spider web, everything in the web vibrates. Mm -hmm. 
Well, but don't we have in 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 physics and mathematics something called the uh, oh I'm trying to think of the the algorithm that's used to separate multiple frequencies, uh, and I had it a moment ago and Fourier and Fourier transform. Thank you, thank yes. you. My God, I, you know French. <clears throat> yeah, this was a French mathematician who figured yeah. out that if you have a cycle <clears throat> that's composed of a bunch of subcycles that you can't see the subcycles. But there's a mathematical way to tease out the sub-cycles from the bigger cycle if you have enough information. And Richard, it's my contention that at some day, we have not reached that day yet, there will be some mathematician so duly interested in astrology that this person will apply some form, some type some 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 you know um some uh um you know kind of next stage of fourier transforms to these very very low frequencies that are seen in astrology it, it, there it's not there now but yes absolutely but it could be there if someone cared which is why i would suggest yes in the in the mode of danny deutsch who's a big ad guy in new york that there there needs to be a branding conversation about astrology i think it needs to be known as hyperdimensional astrology so people get the idea that these cycles are bringing information and energy in from beyond 3d reality and therefore the standard physics explanation or sagan saying that the obstetrician exerts more force on the baby than the planet configurations when it's born is really crapola because you're talking apples and oranges and Kumquat. That's right. That's that's right. That's right. And there is a Newtonian measurement in which Pluto exerts more force than the doctor, and it's basically called Newton called it gravitational inertia. Okay. And it's a ta- was a, it's a tangential uh, um, force that. But regardless of all that, the fact is that we can actually take these individual cycles. And we can tweeze them out. We can we can see them once we are, are attuned to them. Here's here's the problem: is if if science is instrumenting the electromagnetic frequency and going from from um, frequencies that are um, hundreds and hundreds of trillions of cycles every second to um, cycles that are maybe mm, 10, 20, 30, 60 cycles a second, you know, at, at the very long wave end of the spectrum. In each of these cases, there has to be, the instrumentation has to measure the repeatable frequency, just like a musical note. You hear a musical note like, like concert pitch A, which is 440 cycles a second. And so we have a, a meter that can measure the repeatability of this um, of, of of something of a of, of a waveform 440 times every second. If it measures 443 times in a second, that note will be sharp. It won't fit in. Something will sound wrong. The question is, how do you create an instrument that will measure the cycle of Pluto? Because Pluto is a approximately a 248-year cycle. We could say 250. It rounds off fine. Mm. What that means is we set our meter and we go, beat, 
and then we have to wait 250 years for the next beat to go to the end of one cycle. Yeah, you basically leave, 200, you, go ahead. You basically leave a wake-up call for 250 years <laughs> later. Right, right. But 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 that's why we don't have these cycles instrumented is because we can't create the repeatability on such low frequencies. You know, there is a whole field of science that is waiting to be born. Yes, having there, to do, there are several. Having, well, I'm, yes. I'm thinking in terms of astrological you know, predilections, which is the astrology of other star systems. And lo and behold, when Nikolai, uh, Nicholas Kozarev, the Soviet scientist who pioneered so much of the 1950s work on torsion fields, he actually put a detector at the focal point of the Polkovo Observatory in the Crimea, if you're you know, following the geopolitics, um, at, the, uh, at the focal point of the 50-inch telescope, and he was able to detect torsion field vibrations from other star systems. The weird part is that he got three locations on the sky for where these measurements kind of resonated. One where the optical position of the star currently was, which is to be expected. One in the past where the star had been in its motion across the sky over a very long period of time. It's called proper motion. And then a third in a future position along that line of proper motion where it would be sometime in the future. And this, of course, completely screws up three-dimensional ideas of what's going on and automatically invokes a higher dimensional reality that astrologers, I don't think are... No, I don't think so either. But they need to be. Well, I think that they're getting there and there's a lot of work. You know, I mean, there's more interest in astrology on many different levels than there ever has been before. But, you know, there are some things that have worked their way into the popular culture. And one of them is based upon the cycle of the planet Saturn. And Saturn as the most outwardly visible, that means without a telescope, uh, the naked eye can see if one attunes to the movement of Saturn, one can see that Saturn is just under a 30-year cycle, 29 and a half years uh, approximately. And, um, and there have been books written by non-astrologers about <laughs> our attunement to the rhythm of Saturn without even knowing that there was an attunement. The book I'm talking about came out in the late 1960s by a woman um, named Gail Sheehy. Oh, And she wrote a book called Passages. Right, right. And in this book, amongst other things, she said that there there were gateways in our lives where things happened. And it didn't matter where we lived on the planet or what our cultural or what our belief system was, we kind of went through similar transitions around certain periods of our life. And one of them was around the age of 2930. In fact, this is so built into our culture, we have a concept that 
you don't trust if you're under 30 you don't trust anyone over 30 <laughs> and if you're over 30 it doesn't matter how precocious or mature someone is who's under 30 they're just a kid mm. and you see the thing is that at age 30 or 29 and a half Saturn completes one cycle it's like your first birthday okay first dumb question why no. Saturn I mean it's just by chance Earth eyes and optics and the brightness of things make Saturn the last visible outpost of the solar system. When you get a telescope, you find there's Uranus out there and there's Neptune and there's Pluto and there's Charon. Oh, hell, there's, there's a half a million things that exactly. NASA tracks going so around So why, you know? why, other than just it's, it's the farthest out, why does Saturn seem to mark these real, and I call them nodal points, in people's I think that's lives? a good word. Yeah. And, and the word for people in astrology, they get confused by the word node um, because there is this point called the nodes of the moon. But the word node is simply a Latin word for not, just like a, you know, uh, like, like a, um, in, 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 in a tumor cell or in a cancer cell. Um, there's a node, which is the knot, which is or when you throw rocks in water and you see the ripples cross each other, they cross each other and they create points that don't move. Those are knots. Those are nodes. And so that's, it's a great word to use. And and I'm just picking Saturn out as an example. We could do the same thing with um, any of the slower moving planets. Um, even Mars, Jupiter, um, we'll get to Uranus, Neptune, and Pl Uranus and Pluto in particular in a few minutes. Saturn is just such a good example because mythologically, Saturn represents exactly what it represents astrologically, meaning that that Saturn is the is, Saturn is Latin, um, you know, for Kronos, which is Greek, and Saturn is in effect. Father Time. Saturn is the Grim Reaper. Saturn is, you know, is karma. Saturn is you get what you deserve. Saturn is the planet related to responsibility. And all this comes from the Greek and Roman mythologies of Kronos and of, you know, end of Saturn. And so what seems to happen is everyone around age 29, 30 go through a crisis. And they go through a crisis of growing up, of leaving something of their childhood behind, of maybe making um, a decision of I'm going to do this in my life instead of that, even though they went to college to become an attorney at age 29 or 30, they discover rock and roll. Yeah, but, all right, all right. I, I, we've all heard of Saturn return, Saturn return, meaning it makes that one orbit you know, 29, 20, 29 years. Well, after and that's born. all I'm saying is, is that once one begins to observe this previously invisible cycle, one but, sees that this why, is just like a season. But why isn't there a Jupiter return and a Mars there return? Is. And a there is. But why did there Saturn, is. why did Saturn get the, all the branding? Because it, it, it's like, why do we know, um, you know, like a, uh, why do we know the moon you know, when, you know, when it is in opposition to the sun or in conjunction with the sun, rather than all the other planets, which also do a conjunction and opposition. It's because it's the most obvious. Well, why is Saturn, which actually is rather dim in the sky, why is it the most obvious for a Saturn return astrologically, whereas Jupiter, 
which is really bright and up there, you know, in the Well, there the is a Jupiter, there is a Jupiter return. I don't want to get distracted but on we, it. But, but we don't saying, hear, wait, 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 we don't Richard, hear about listen, listen, what you're saying is true. The fact of the matter is that everyone on the planet celebrates their solar return every year. Right. You know, so yeah, your, uh, so your, your birthday. Well, we, yeah. But the point is uh, um, that when a planet returns, I say a planet, a sun, moon, or a planet, returns to where it was when you were born, astrologically, this is like the completion of a cycle and the beginning of a new cycle. And, and there's nothing... There's, there's nothing. I just want to know how did Saturn get the press and all the other guys? No one talks about their Jupiter return or their Mars return. Oh, in my circle, people do. Yeah, but in my circle, no, nobody. They may have heard of Saturn return. Because it's, it's the same thing as why do people know about Mercury retrograde and not Mars retrograde, Venus retrograde, Jupiter retrograde? It's just because it's the one that caught on the most obvious. I'm not so sure about that because planets orbiting inward toward the primary as opposed to outward Mercury versus Mars yeah. in the physics they're not they're not the same they're not mirror reciprocal they're not you know mirror images of each other that is true but any astrologer will tell you that a Mars the thing about a Mercury retrograde is that its rhythm, it retrogrades about three times a year for about three weeks. Right. And so its rhythm is observable, whereas Venus retrogrades once every year and a half. Um, and, and, and so it's not as noticeable. It, fits, it, doesn't, it doesn't fit into something that is like, it's like if you're driving a car going 40 miles an hour, you screech on the brakes and throw it into reverse, you'll know that something changed. Right. And you compare that with being in an 18-wheeler truck, just kind of going inches, just like rolling very slowly, and then putting that into reverse. It's a huge amount of inertia, and it'll have an effect, but sitting in the passenger seat, you won't know it hmm. the way you would notice it in the change of speed you know, of a faster planet like Mercury. But... I also have this qualitative feeling that Mercury retrogrades really do screw up things and the others are much more subtle and in the noise of life, they can easily be overlooked. I think that that's, again, I think it's true for the same reason that I just said. If you're in a Porsche... So there is something qualitatively different between a Mercury retrograde and the others. Uh, because it has the most rapid change of speed. See, I'm wondering if it's that or if it's because the effect is greater because it's the closest to the sun. It has high angular momentum. Um, I think all of those are true, but Venus also is noticeable. Mars, when Mars goes, you see, when the, as I know, you know, but most of the people out there do not when a planet in its normal moving around the sun is closest to the earth in its cycle, that's when it turns retrograde. Now, for the inner planets, Mercury and Venus... This does not mean the planets suddenly go backward around the sun in their orbits. It simply means that optically, optically, geometrically, projected... Apparent apparent motion. From movement of the Earth. For Venus and Mars, when they get close to Earth, they're between 
the earth and the sun. So they appear as a conjunction, like a new moon. When the outer planets are close to Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto, they're on the same side of the sun, but the Earth is in between, so they seem opposition, like a full moon. Right. So there is something very dynamically different, as you just said, between the physics of an internal retrograde, Venus and Mars, and an external planet, meaning it's outside of the orbit of Earth, Mars out to, out, out, out to whatever whatever the latest planet is that's been discovered. <laughs> yes. Uh, but, but the point here is that, again, what we're talking about, Richard, are cycles that people don't notice until Hermes or someone points them out, tells them the secret, and once they see it, the more they see it, the more they see it, the more they build experience around it, and the more obvious it becomes to the point of like, oh, my God, how could have I missed the fact that every two years when Mars turns retrograde for about um, for about 10 weeks, once every two years approximately, um, whether whether the wars on the planet are heat are, are become more obvious or whether anger and is just closer to feeling like war, um, you know, you begin to see it and you begin to see the start of the major major wars historically are often, not always, but very often tied to a Mars retrograde. And so the point here is simply that there are cycles that we don't see, that we don't notice until we spend time noticing them. And because of the complexity of the solar system and all the planets, you know, in the gossamer, you know, spider web mm. of everything, um, it's a bit overwhelming for people to jump in and to understand how how all this works. Now, there are some things that are absolutely simple to understand, and 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 this is now not a retrograde we're going to talk about, but just talking about a new moon and a full moon. Whether you're an astrologer or not, most people acknowledge or agree, and especially if you have a friend who's an emergency room attendee, nurse, or doctor. They know, and I've checked this out so many times over the decades, it's crazy. When there's a full moon on a Friday or Saturday night, those are crazy nights. If a full moon falls on a Wednesday night, it may be a little bit busier in the emergency room, but it's not like it's picking up on the wave of it being already a party night, and now it becomes crazier. See, so, I, have, I have seen books that completely, you know, kick to the, to the you know, side of the road, the idea that full moons, hospital visits, emergency calls, all that, there's any correlation at all. It's like the, the, the jury is 50-50, and depending upon who you read and what data they've assembled, I mean, I have not found any good... Oh, I, I have a tremendous amount of information on that, and I would say that the people who deny it are people who, and unfortunately, there are so many people who call themselves skeptics who are not skeptics, they're just but disbelievers, I would and they'll make... But I would but think the, that there's a kind of vested interest on the part of police and fire and hospitals and emergency, you know, EMTs and all that. I, I they need to be a, aware of this regardless are, of what Richard, the skeptics say. I have a friend who is an emergency physician who, who, who has told me time and again 
that when there is a full moon on a holiday or on a weekend, that they staff extra. It's just common knowledge, regardless of what the skeptics might say. Then how, then, then, point. then how do skeptics rule the roost? Because most people, when you say, is there a full moon correlation with these, you know, bad things? They'll say, well, no, it was, it was disproven years ago. Yeah, well, it's for the same reason why um, skeptics think that hyperdimensional physics and torsion fields and anything that's not, you know, within the realm of Newtonian mechanics. Yeah, but that's not in your face like a body count in an emergency room. You know, what was it that uh, Emily Dickinson said in one of her poetry? She'd rather believe in microscopes than miracles. In other words, it's right in your face. How come it isn't common knowledge? Yeah, when the, in other words, there really is still an argument and it's almost like overwhelming evidence says there is a correlation a few skeptics say oh, there's none, and people don't believe their lying eyes. Yeah, well, look, I, I totally agree with you here. And the fact of the matter is most, mo- most scientists say that the idea that someone, you know, that, that an astrologer can look at someone's horoscope, the, the map of the planets at their birth, and can know anything about that person is crap. And I just, because they haven't done it, I've been, you know, as, as one of, thousands and thousands of trained astrologers um i i mean i've looked at oh i don't know maybe eh, maybe 40,000 um um charts over my 50 years as an astrologer something like that i'm making that number up but it'd probably be 30 40,000 um and i always it's it's like taking a polaroid picture of someone who's never seen a polaroid camera and they go impossible impossible oh my God, this is a miracle. But after doing that 20 or 30 or a thousand times, it would be a miracle if it didn't match. And my my point here is that just because there is an absolute match between a person, their horoscope and, you know, and how they live their lives and who they are, that doesn't mean that scientists will ever see that because they already know that it's impossible. You know, um, Lavoisier the first president of the French Academy of Sciences who actually lost his head during the, um, during the French Revolution. Um, Lavoisier, at, when he was appointed the president of the French Academy of Sciences, basically the first order of business was he issued a statement. And the statement was very simple. Rocks do not fall, stones do not fall from the sky because there are no stones in the sky to fall. Hmm. Now, this was a local um, conundrum at that time that we we would call these meteors or meteorites if they hit the ground. Okay, we are at the top of the hour. I must cut you off. It's terrible. The clock is a a hard task mistress. The clock is Saturn. (laughs) Wow. Okay, we're going to go out at the top of the hour with the Ukrainian national anthem. There's a war going on. The very dedicated, very, very patriotic people are struggling to survive, and our hearts are with them. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We'll get back to Rick Levine and the cycles that run our lives shortly.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hudland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Here in July, July 10th, 2022. So our lives, if they are modulated by the forces triggered by the motions, the rotations, the angles, relationships between constantly moving bodies around the sun, like the moon around the earth, do we have free will? I mean, this is a really important question um, there's someone in my dim past who said something like the stars uh, expose, they do not impose or something like that. Rick, do we have, in fact, free will if this really is a science of cycles and predictability? I would like to say that we have the illusion of free will, but it's a closed system and one can never prove or disprove it. In other words, I can be driving my car 50 miles an hour thinking I'm going to commit suicide, get to the edge of a cliff, slam on the brake and go, nope, I'm not going to do it. Um, it was my fate to do it, but I'm exerting my free will. How do I know it wasn't my fate not to do it? We, hmm. we don't know. However, I will tell you this, and, and, and uh, this is something that not only have I spent a lot of time thinking about, but in fact, I was, this is... Uh, I think you mentioned in my little accolades at the very beginning that I was awarded maybe not the International Astrologer of the Year Award in Kolkata, India. And the reason why I was awarded that was from a lecture I gave there on a quantum physics look at fate and free will. Mm. And I'll tell you the conclusion of this, and it, and it absolutely 100% works. And, and it's really based upon Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, which, as I know you know, but some listeners may not, um, that as we moved into the world of subatomic, uh, the subatomic realms, what happened was that, um, that we learned that, that there was this thing called the particle wave duality. Things uh, seemed to propagate, travel like waves, but when we measured them for the moment of measurement, they appeared to be a particle. And, and, and what became apparent was, which is which Heisenberg, Werner Heisenberg won a, it was a Nobel Prize for this, um, was that at any given moment, the more we know about where a subatomic wave is traveling, 
the less we know about where a particle is in that moment. And vice versa. The more we know about a particle, the more we know about the particleness, the less we know about where it's going. And I would say that most astrologers practice astrology from a standpoint of particle physics, meaning the moon and Saturn are particles, and we measure them going around the sun, we map them in a chart, we put them in as symbols, um, and yet they're particles. I call them BFPs, big, big fucking particles. <laughs> BFPs. BFPs, um, okay. But they're still particles. So hang on one second. So the thing, though, is that although the moon is a particle, I can go out tonight and see a nearly full moon and go, yep, it's there, it's a particle. But when I'm not looking at it, it's propagating at 13 cycles per year. That's its that's its um, that that that's its rhythm. That's its wave form. So I would suggest that particle to wave as fate is to free will. And what this means is that fate and free will are both operative in the universe. But at any given moment in time. The more we are focused on, attuned to, or measuring the particle, the fate, the less free will we appear to have, and vice versa. So is that your way of saying take astrology with a grain of salt? No, not at all. <laughs> it's, my, it's my way of saying if you don't exercise the illusion of free will at every moment in your life, you have no right to complain. <laughs> in okay. other words, in, in other words, if if everything was just fated, everything, why would there be any reason to do anything ever? Damn good question. Yeah, but obviously, if I don't do anything, my life falls apart pretty quickly. I don't pay the rent. I'm out on the street. You know, I don't follow. You know, the, the, there 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 are causal and I would say Saturnian, Saturnine <laughs> relationships between what I do and what happens. Okay, and so, uh, let, 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 let us delve into this idea of Saturn and marking time and stability. Because, again, from my <clears throat> exterior appreciation of astrology, and I've had the benefit of living with a couple of them over my lifetime, um, the idea that Saturn modulates the structure of reality, institutions, the norms, the things we kind of unquestioningly accept in our lives. The, the new, you know, watchword is the, uh, the guardrails. That all seems to hinge on Saturn. And I want to know how did it get all attributed to Saturn, which just happens to be the last visibly obvious planet in the solar system. Oh, I, I think that the overlords, the, the aliens, placed them into orbit very carefully. And I'm kidding. I don't know. I don't know. But that's an important question. It, it's an important question. And I think that there's lots of potential answers. I think that one of the potential answers is simply that we've observed these rhythms for thousands of years. I mean, astrology, is, as you know, is not new. It may be new in its modern computer-related database statistical correlation you know, form, but people have been watching the movement of these slow planets going back uh, for thousands of years. In fact, Zoroastrians 
you know, the Zoroastrian priests called Magi, uh, their temples were like little observatories. And when the three Zoroastrian priests saw Jupiter and Saturn coming together for a rare conjunction, technically I don't want to explain what made it so rare, but it was very rare, they went off looking for an event that was so rare that they went off looking for the birth of Jesus. Mm. Now, I'm not saying that one caused the other, but I am saying they are both there, and the facts of the um, Magi, who were Zoroastrian priests, in effect, they they looked at the rhythm of Jupiter and Saturn, which were the slowest known planets at that time, um, and and so they were very aware of these well, rhythms all right. simply can, by watching them over thousands of years. Can, all right, so you're basically saying we have an empirical database. I am. Very long empirical database. Okay. I am. Can we, anyone tried, to back engineer it from the other direction? Okay, Saturn is observed to to interact with frames, with matrices, with reality, with structure, with foundation. Has anyone tried to back engineer the why? In other well, words, go ahead. There have been several, uh, there have been numbers of, of um, people who have done work in this direction. Perhaps the most famous is a French statistician named Michel Gauquelin. And Michel Gauquelin um, was a, a statistics student at the Sorbonne and decided that for his PhD thesis, um, he would disprove astrology. Oh. And, 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 and he did this because, <laughs> as you may know, in France, it's national law from the time of the French Revolution, what, in the 1780s, um, it is national law that every birth be recorded with an accurate time. Well, that and helps. So, yeah, and so um, Gokulan wondered if there was a connection, a statistically measurable connection between people successful in a particular field as a career. And he had and all their, these parachutes with all these books with all these dates and all these names and all these babies, and he had a huge database to work with, right? Right, and what he found was that there was no correlation. But he didn't stop there because he kind of was hooked. Well, say that again. Say that he found no correlation. He, 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 his first thesis was um, if astrology was valid, there would be a connection between someone's sun sign, that is the position of where the sun is in effect the time of year, and the person's profession. Hmm. So, for, for example, you know, someone who was born under the sign of Aries – theoretically might be a soldier and someone theoretically born under the sign of Libra might be an artist. He found that was no correlation. Oh. And, but and, he was uh, so... Do you, do you remember hooked. how many, how big his database, how many hundreds of thousands I, or millions of people? No, I think his first study, I think had 35,000, but understand these were, these were all calculated by hand. I mean, this is before, this is in, in the late 50s, early 60s. Oh, it's that I thought it was much later, like in the 70s. No. So that's that when he, I first yeah. came familiar with Gokulin and his, his Mars data, obviously. Yeah, Mars. the Mars data is the most famous, but this was the second wave of his work. Um, so he was he, operating the same time frame as Kozarev in the Soviet Union, and both of them were using slide rules and pen and paper. 
Yeah, and it may have been a little later. It may have been on into the '60s. I, I'm, I don't have the dates in front of Still, me. Still, it was a it was the slide rule. The Saturn V was designed by von Braun with the slide rule. And right. Anyhow, um, what he discovered in the second round of work that there was a very statistically relevant correlation beyond any margin of error of the planet that appeared to be rising. Like every day the sun rises, every day the moon rises, even though we, don't, we may not see it, every day every planet rises. Ah, and a, hold and, it, and pause, astrologers pause. place a heavy importance on what we call the rising sign or the ascendant. With, the ascendant is the sign on the eastern horizon. With damn good scientific reason, because many years ago, Robin and I went to Mexico, and I was able to get a whole camera crew up on top of the Pyramid of the Sun at Teotihuacan, and I measured with the Acutron as the sun cleared the horizon, literally, physically, on the horizon, the earth rotating at about a thousand miles in the direction of the rising sun, there were two blips, pulses yeah. of the Acutron at sunrise, and then a few seconds later, like a, like a double nuclear pulse, having nothing to do with nuclear physics. That is measurable, and we did it right. again and again. So, yes, this is why I think prisoners are shot at dawn. Um, this is why, you know... Indians used to raid at dawn. Something about the object on the horizon in that you know geometry. that heart, heart attacks happen statistically uh, 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 between four and six a.m. Yes, because and, our blood and, pressure our blood pressure rises as part of our waking up process. And Robin chose dawn on March third to die, uh, literally, yeah, as the yeah. sun was clearing the horizon on the third day of the third month and someone in her wonderful uh, field of tributes on the, on the web uh, wrote that well now she's experiencing hyperdimensional physics you know in in the uh, in the flesh her literal choice of when she departed was an echo of the physics we had measured at Teotihuacan so what what Gokulan discovered was that there is a correlation if there was a planet if there was a planet that was either rising was the most important effect but there was also an effect setting and there was also an effect culminating meaning reaching its highest um altitude that, you know which obviously is not directly overhead because of the latitude but in each of these well, the, cross, what are crossing the, the meridian you know, halfway That's exactly between dawn and, dawn and dusk. Exactly, yeah. crossing, crossing the meridian, correct use of the word. And so um, what he discovered was, and, and the Mars was the most overwhelming, but he discovered these same um, uh, correlations for other planets. What he discovered was that people who were successful, who, who basically stood out, and he developed measurements for what made a person um, you know, how they picked the people who stood out in a particular field, the people who who excelled, not who just were in the field, the people who excelled in their career in the military or sports tended 
to have Mars rising or on one of the cardinal points. Mm, cardinal points. Uh, uh, cardinal points meaning the four points of the compass. If the east is east, it's the it's the ascendant, midheaven, descendant, and imim Chelly. You know the the four the four points. Okay. The meridian, the meridian, and the horizon. So this again was an empirical looking at the data, looking at the correlations, which. But he also discovered, for example, um, that scientists and medical doctors who excelled tended to have Saturn in that position rather than Mars. Hmm. And he also discovered that writers um, and uh, poets tended to have the moon there. Uh, no, they had tended to have Mercury there. Pa- um, painters tended to have, you know, artists, visual artists tended to have the moon there. And the point was, what w- he discovered, and yet the Mars was the most overwhelming and it was the Mars data that astronomer George Bach and a bunch of other um, astronomers uh, in the United States chose to make fun of, and then they ran their own whole system to disprove it, right. but they got caught fudging data. Oh, okay. And, yeah, one, 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 of, one of the people on the board, and this is what this, this organization be, eventually became Psychops, but prior to it being that, <laughs> Um, one of the people resigned from the board because George, um, uh, I think it's George Bach, yeah, um, was basically eliminating data that skewed things to making it look like it was real. And they just were arbitrarily eliminating, eliminating data. Uh, and so once again, we have skeptics who aren't really skeptics. They're disbelievers, and they'll fudge any data they well, need. They're religious to make it look- zealots, and they're fanatics, and they're terrorists. They well, won't. they're the same people as the FDA fudging data to make it look like that inexpensive, street-available medicine might have just been just as effective, mm. you know, in curing COVID as uh, multi, multi, multi billion dollars of you know of untested uh, vaccinations. Don't mm. get me started there. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but see, that's why you have to have a system where there's accountability, checks and balances. There's something out of whack with the checks and balances. Otherwise, those things could not could not progress. That's correct. And yet we look at the system and we see whether it was in the um, uh, disproving of the Gokulin data or certain vaccines or maybe even in certain legal situations in the higher ups of the U.S. government that accountability doesn't always happen the way it's supposed to. Okay, so Gawkelin discovered that this empirical data that these, these professions, and he defined it as success not in terms, I presume, of money, but in terms of fame, attribution, uh, credibility. Correct, correct, all of that correct. Okay. So it has to and do he with- developed he developed a language of of um, words around the planets and then words that would be used to describe these people and mapped where the correlations were. Um, I mean, his work was very very detailed. He wrote probably, God, I don't know. I think I have four of his books. I'm guessing he wrote eight or nine books, um, and uh, you know, and he was very very clear, scientifically minded. I'm having this errant random thought. I really wonder what Trump's chart looks like. <coughs> oh, every astrologer in the world has seen it way too much. <laughs> well, he's I outstanding mean, I, in his field. 
<laughs> yeah, um, I don't know if you ever read. Yeah, knowing you, you probably did. Um, 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 Isaac, well, Isaac Asimov's Foundation trilogy. I'm sure yeah, of course. Did. Are you kidding? All right, so, all right, <laughs> so the, the, book two was um, basically the about mule. this guy, the, the mule. mule. Thank you, the mule. And and Donald Trump, in my mind, is the mule. He defies every possible. Well, the mule in, in in Isaac's uh, trilogy was a was a mutant. Yeah, he literally it, could it, control. I mean, Trump really he's controlling thirty percent population, and it's like mine. How That's, how is he I doing be, it? Because he's the mule. I, I mean, this is. I'm not just thinking this right now. I've thought about this a lot. I've spent a lot of time with his chart. You know, he was born on a full moon eclipse within an hour of a full moon eclipse. Oh, that's an alignment. That's a very powerful alignment. Very in the powerful that we've alignment. Measured, yes, absolutely. Um, and he was also born um, with Regulus, the um, you know one of the powerful royal stars that we just talked about. He was born with Regulus rising, and each of the four watchers, the four you know the four fixed stars of the Babylonians, um, each one had uh, a guarantee of fame and fortune, with a guarantee of a downfall if one thing wasn't followed. And with Regulus, it was revenge. If someone was vengeful, then Regulus would ensure their downfall. Well, that describes Donald very, very well. It's very interesting. Yeah. Mm. Okay. Um, we're tabulating the objects that are causing the cycles in the physics. We went through the moon, planets, the kind of foundational orbit of Saturn. Uh, it works, but we don't know why it works. I'm just, you know, I'm always thinking of the why. What, what would the theoretical reason be for an object orbiting the sun almost every 30 years? By the way, are you of the opinion like I am that the planets are not exactly where they once were? Yes. Yes, Mr. Velikovsky, I am. <laughs> that they kind of <laughs> slid? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think I, – I, and I said for those people who don't know what my, my little in-joke was, Emmanuel Velikovsky – um, wrote three books simultaneously in nineteen in the early 1950s, mm-hmm. and all three of them were on the New York Times bestseller list. And overnight, all three of them disappeared when Macmillan bought back every open copy available because of threat from the Southern Catholic or, or Christian universities. Macmillan was the largest uh, textbook publisher yep. at that yep. time, and because of the heresy, because um, because basically mm-hmm. Velikovsky was saying that the solar system was not stable and that planets moved around. Well, and in fact, a lot of the – hold on, let me finish. And a lot of the biblical miracles occurred as these planets moved around, including Venus's collision with Earth around the time of the Jews' exodus from, Israel, uh, from Egypt. Now, I'm not selling any of these. I'm just saying the idea of an unstable, um, electrically charged, or let's say not gravitationally – restrained solar system um, was Velikovsky's contribution, and I think that there's some validity to all of that. Except not on the time frame and in the degree that Velikovsky went way out on that limb and then sawed it off under him. That may be. You do not have Venus being ejected from the great red spot of Jupiter and careening past Earth 
and causing the manna to flow from heaven and the pillar of fire and the whole Moses thing and all. In other words, he tried to collapse history to fit his idea as opposed to let the idea track history. And what I was asking was, we have these these planetary cycles that are almost but not exact multiples of familiar terrestrial timekeeping. Like yes. Jupiter goes around the sun in 11.86 years yeah. as opposed to 12. Did it once go around the, the, the sun in a period 12 times longer than the Earth's orbit of the sun? In other words, 12 years, et cetera, et cetera, of the solar system. As I mentioned yeah, at the top I totally, of the show. I, I agree with that. And, and the moon, you know, the, I mean, uh, in a perfect world, the moon would be a 28-day cycle. Yeah, and it's been moving. And yep. it slides through these resonances. as well. If there was this huge catastrophe in the relatively recent past of the solar system, i.e. a whole planet was destroyed and the yep. mass was ejected and then everything else had to kind of re-equilibrate is that a word? Well, it is yeah, now. Yeah, re-equilibriate. Yeah. Re-equilibriate, yeah. Um, to kind of slide to a new least energy configuration. And that, to me, is one of the biggest evidences that something really, really bad happened in this designer solar system. I want to get the point across. Now we've got mainstream science looking at thousands upon thousands upon thousands of other solar systems and the only one that is like ours is us. All right. So you said that earlier. I need I need to ask you, what in what way is our solar system compared to the ones that have been uh, that are being discovered? In what way is our solar system unique? Well, we the way that other solar systems were first discovered by a ground-based telescope in I think Switzerland and then Harvard picked up on it. It's called 51 Pegasi. It's uh, it's a catalog number of a star in the constellation of Pegasus. And right. it and it has a planet orbiting it every few days called a hot Jupiter. Under when this was first discovered, and now there are thousands of these examples all over the galaxy. If anybody had ever proposed that there'd be a Jupiter-sized planet not orbiting a billion miles away from the star, but literally, you know, 10, 12 million miles away, whipping around every three or four days, they would have put those people into some kind of insane asylum. But that was the first set of planets we found, and now the so-called hot Jupiters are overwhelmingly abundant. A solar system where you have little planets nestled in around the sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and big guys far from the sun, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune, they don't exist. They're absolutely well, non-existent in the galaxy except for this example, which is so part and parcel of my model that this solar system was redesigned a long, long time ago by the so-called cosmic engineers so that life and consciousness and this whole cyclic phenomenology of how consciousness is modulated by a changing physics so this all could take place here and only here, and it's obviously making a lot of mainstream astronomers very uncomfortable to find after all the fuss and fury about how average we are, we're not average at all. 
Well, a, a couple of things. First of all, those same people or those same intelligences, physical or metaphysical, that engineered this solar system might be the same ones that that put Saturn in its place and defined its role and the various planets' roles. When you were asking about where did that come from, I don't know. But I would also say one other thing, and that is although we appear so far to be unique that doesn't mean ultimately we are unique my understanding of how planets are being discovered has to do with the aberration of light as a large planet passes around and changes the light of the sun or of the star itself and it might be that the technique is leaning us towards discovering these other systems rather than ones or one or any one that may be the same as ours. I'm not saying that that's going to happen. You know, that's, I'm just saying that's a possibility. That is in the cards, and we will consider it in more detail when we return. We're at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Rick Levine, who is answering really interesting questions with even more interesting answers. Georgia Lambert's going to join us shortly. You're on the other side of midnight. We're trying to grapple with the idea, is the current bizarreness of life on Earth Everything hitting the fan at once, from politics to religion to medicine to war to even the discovery that we are not alone. I mean, did you ever think there'd be a time when the U.S. government set up an office of UFOs, UAPs, in the Pentagon? We're trying to figure out, can we figure it out? Is this all going somewhere? Is at some level... This status, this position, this monument to time, is it in fact predictable? Can we predict the next big thing that's going to happen to humanity? And if so, how do we do that? You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Other side of midnight.com. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hoagland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcast that provides you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com.
So welcome back, everyone, on this Sunday night. Soon to be Monday morning here in the Land of Enchantment with a gorgeous almost full moon shining out there on the desert, on the extraordinary Martian-looking landscape that uh, I find myself living in. So we're talking with Rick Levine about the predictability of astrology, because any science worthy of the name must have some kind of predictability. So, Rick, everything is going weird right now. Where is the predictability? Where, what, is, what are the unseen hyperdimensional factors which are causing everything and everyone to go kind of nuts right about now? Well, I, I think that in order to really understand this, one needs to look at the trajectory, also understand that as we talk about the astrology of this, it's not just the astrology because things have changed. And I just want to say this just very, very briefly. If you go back a couple hundred years ago and there was some major extraordinary astrological event, um, like a what would be like a new moon or full moon, but with the slower moving planets, and you had an extraordinary period of time, you know, let's say like the 18, you know, the, 18, the early 1800s, 1810, 1812, 1814, and, you know, you had a war of the United States against England, the second war against England, the war of 1812, and you had in England, you had people like William Blake, and you had Beethoven running around, I mean, it was an extraordinary period of time. However, if you were living in some place in the middle of the, you know, Great Plains or in some little village in Poland, you might experience something that things were different and then it would settle back down. That's very different than the major astrological events that occurred in the mid-1960s when all of a sudden, with electronic uh, technology, we had basically music that were like tribal drums that captured the rhythms. And it didn't matter whether you grew up in Paris, Langdon, North Dakota, or a little town in Serbia. You had the music that you were able to play again and again and again that kind of created this, this, this larger-than-life message. And I think that where we've gone to is now that pretty much everyone has a recording device in their cellular telephones, that what happens is that every time there's a major nodal notch, like a knot where events happen, Mm -hmm. enough people record it in enough different ways that every time over the following weeks and months that that energy is astrologically re-stimulated, out comes all the pre-recorded stuff again and again and again. And what we're doing is like being at a Grateful Dead concert where there's this incredible feedback that creates a whole different level of experience. So wait, 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 wait. You're, t- <clears throat> you're telling me that Teodan Chardin's new sphere I am. would exactly. not exist without CNN? I mean, there, no. used, there used to be this, this cliche, if a tree <laughs> falls in the forest, and there's no one there to hear it, does it make a sound? Which you now transmogrify to, if an event happens and CNN isn't there to cover it, did it really happen? You're saying that the initial spike in consciousness triggered 
by an astrological conjunction, alignment, whatever, can now propagate later in time as an echo in a three-dimensional universe where social media can run it again and again and again and again. That's exactly what I'm saying. Wow. So we, so we have astrological effects with huh? huge – we have astrological effects with huge, long tails of echoes. I call them cosmic feedback. Okay. Yeah, and I, and I don't know of anyone else other than me that has like kind of talked about this. I've brought this into a number of my uh, lectures. I'll be lecturing at at a big astrology conference in outside of Boulder and Westminster. You, you know that area. Yep. Um, in late August, and one of my lectures is basically about the downfall of Saturn as the ultimate authority. And 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 the role of you know digital technology and how it's changing the actual mechanisms of astrology. Good heavens! I mean, I would have thought that would be kind of like a almost like foam on an ocean, but you're saying it can substantively really move consciousness months after the quote alignment or the event. Okay. Yes. Yes, I am. And I mean, it's very perceptive of you to to be able to reword what I said so succinctly. That's exactly what I'm saying. But look at how many times in the past year and a half have you seen footage of the January 6th insurrection? Oh, countless millions. You know, I'm, it's all just a blur. You know. All right. If that had happened 150 years ago, that event would have happened and then disappeared. Well, there would have been some headlines, you know. There would have been some headlines. There may have even been, you know, um, a congressional, you know, discovery or, you know, investigation. Uh, But what I'm saying is that it's substantially different and it's part of this crazy bifurcation polarization. Wait, 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 wait. You just – I just had an interesting thought. I think it's interesting because what you're describing, I mean, most of history has been one way. The events happen, consciousness is raised, and then life moves on. You're now setting up a 3D electromagnetic feedback loop where the same energy, the same consciousness, the same patterns can be fed back to the source through the next available gate, having unknown effects in what started the whole pattern in the first place. I am. It's like a bad science fiction novel. Wow. An uncontrollable feedback loop. And I'm suggesting that in the 20th century, we saw the first waves of that. You know, Bucky Fuller said in the last book that he wrote called Utopia or Oblivion, um, he said that humanity would experience successive waves of response to events that were either positive or negative where an increasing number of people would experience the same thing at the same time. You know, we moderners forget that Roosevelt's, um, you know, radio announcement of the bombing of Pearl Harbor, that more people listened to that at the same moment in the same moment in time than ever had happened before on the planet. Then Kennedy's assassination was another bump where for a, a few days everyone – in at least in the United States, but certainly in other Western countries too, were glued 
to an experience that we were all sharing real, yeah. real time. Yeah. Well, Peter this Jennings, is something that never happened. Before. Peter Jennings called these things the, the National Campfire, where everybody yeah. gathered around and they shared this event simultaneously. The moon landing, something like a billion and a the half people. Landing. But but even you know an earthquake or a disaster or a war that it's like we all have it all now and because of that it's like we're getting these in and well what Fuller said just to conclude that he said that the waves would get larger and larger and larger and that change would be like tides washing back and forth you know good evil you know um, uh, positive events negative events until one event was so significant it just washed everything one way or another, which is the title of his book, Utopia or Oblivion. Good grief. Well, that is, you know, going back to audio, Keith, electronics, uh, you can get audio feedbacks, you know, which is echo, 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 you know, and we can do it here sometime inadvertently. You can do it with television where you point a TV camera at at a TV screen and you have this weird video feedback loop that creates yeah, all these yeah, bizarre yeah. patterns. What if a consciousness, because of the feedback loop, is interacting with the origins of these hyperdimensional um, patterns, these resonances, and, and, and you're basically getting unmodeled side effects that have never been experienced before because it's been impossible before in modern history? And this is why I believe what's happening now is kind of like, it's like an apocalypse. And I don't mean that as an ending. I mean, in the true meaning of the Greek word, it's an uncovering, an unveiling unveiling where everything that's ever happened is happening now. You know, I was thinking the other day, I I have a particular interest um, in the um, uh, late 15th century um, uh, Northern Italy. Um, it was a, it was an, a, not only the Florentine Renaissance, but it was also an astrological Renaissance. Um, the court advisor to three generations of Medici's um, was the guy who translated Plato from Greek into Latin, a man named Marsilio Ficino. This has been a particular area of interest of mine. And a couple of weeks ago, I discovered that um, one of the cable, I, I can't remember which, um, um, it, it may be Amazon or, or Netflix, has done a 10-part series on this history. And I'm about halfway through it, and I'm stunned because I know this history really well as to how accurate this this documentary, fantasy, history, whatever you want to call it. And what's happening is that we can tune into any time in history, pretty much, and have it come alive in front of us. Mm. Yeah, I was thinking that the other day, all these old movies that in a thousand years, history will be those old movies. Yeah, if there's a history in a thousand years, and if there's any way to play them. (laughs) Well, there there will be, you know, new transliterated media. Now, I I have no doubt that uh, there will be ways to preserve you know, you know, the incredible golden age of film and all that. So, um, uh, all right. What this means, Richard, from an astrological standpoint is that starting in the 60s, we went through a major, and I don't want to get too technical here. We can do this again on a deeper dive some other time. But in the mid-1960s, we went through an astrological 
transition that was very similar to what happened in 1455 around the invention of the Gutenberg printing press. And of course, in the mid-60s, even though a lot of other things happened, that was also the IBM uh, System 36, the first real computer mm -hmm. that was used by business. Yep. Um, it was followed by another major alignment um, in 1989 to 94. And to have two major alignments like within 30 years is unusual. And yet those same two alignments happened back in Florence, Italy in 1455 and 1479, 1479, the year that the Pope declared war on Florence, assassinated um, Lorenzo the Magnificent's um, younger brother and had Naples declare war on Florence. It was a crazy period of time. Um, but it was also at that time that Plato's work hit the printing press and got dispersed through Europe along with the Corpus Hermetica. Yeah, and it, was, it, was, it was the time of Da Vinci and Michelangelo and this staggering exactly. – I mean, exactly. look at look at look at Da Vinci's Angelo notebook. Luciano, um, uh, um, uh, Albrecht Dürer, all no, that exactly. But what I'm saying is that the printing press at phase one of this uh, period was invented, and at phase two, the Bible was the only book that 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 Gutenberg thought would ever be printed, <laughs> and all of a sudden we had translations from Greek into Latin. Yeah of Plato and of the Corpus Hermetica, basically setting up the Protestant Reformation and the downfall of the absolute power of Rome. Now we look at the 1960s, we had the IBM come out with its uh, computer and they thought the only customers for this computer would be gov national governments and the largest corporations. And then at the second event, the same event that published um, you know, uh, Plato back in the in 1479. In 1990 to 94, we had the World Wide Web and and IBM personal computers, and all of a sudden the computer they lost control again. So there's a synchronicity here of astrological events that have basically set up what began to unfold in a major form. In 2012 to 2015, the Arab Spring and, I mean, just major, major uh, changes all over um, that then brought us to the 2020 period of time. And we're, and we're riding these different, different waves, different, how do I want to say this, um, different planetary cycles that are all coming one after another, after another, after another, very close in time more so than they normally do at the first time when we're holding on to the previous ones from all the previous cycles. Wow. It's kind of like our grandmother. You know, time is what God invented to keep everything from happening at once. And now it's all happening at once because of <laughs> delayed exactly. media. This idea yeah. of this, yeah. this yeah. feedback loop between yeah. consciousness back through the gates to the other higher dimensions and who knows that maybe consciousness is extending artificially the length of these windows, these bandwidth corridors where uh, ex ex you, you got it exactly. You got it exactly. Wow. Well, no wonder a third of the population have been entrained in Trump's madness. 
Yeah. And it doesn't matter. It doesn't, I mean, I, I, this 30%, I read today that 30% of the U.S. population believe that January 6th, 2021 was basically an entrapment created by the Democrats. Yes. You know, we have left the, the sphere of reality and are drifting off into, you know, Never Neverland, quoting Peter yeah. Pan. Yeah, well, we're already in Never Neverland. All right. So the first uh, prescription for a doctor is a correct diagnosis. If you don't diagnose correctly, you can't solve the problem. You can't save the patient. So now that you've created. Right. You, know, you know what the word diagnosis means? It means through knowing. Dia, across, gnosis, yep, knowing. Yep. Across, uh, okay. Through knowing. All right. Good, good, good uh, factoid there. Uh, so in your model, how do we turn this from a detriment, because it's obviously totally uncontrolled, to where we can guide it, to where we can bring sanity back to a population which is now toying with the idea of throwing the republic in the ash can and, you know, adopting, uh, yeah. you know, some kind a, of... A fascist, some sort yeah. of fascist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so... I don't know that there's a simple answer, but for at least a couple of years, I've been closing every talk I do with think cosmically, act locally. Remember that one, yes. And it's because as individuals, we can't change the big pieces. We can change the little pieces, which then, you know, ripple. And... You know, uh, the Buddhists tell us that the only thing we can change is our awareness. And I think that that's why you do the work you are doing. That's why I do the work I am doing. There's many different levels of work that people can do at every level, some political, some active, some intellectual. But the thing is, is that we we have a moment. And, and, and how long that moment will last, whether we've already lost the moment, uh, I know this. I know that based upon that Buckminster Fuller idea of these larger and larger waves of, of, of shared instantaneity, we can change this thing on a dime. We can, we can turn this around just on an event, on a moment. And in fact, that event could just as well be the acknowledgement of the fact that we have other uh, planetary people living with us within us you know, that we didn't know about. I mean, I don't know what the specific event or event scenarios will be, but, you know, we live in, in a world where, you know, a gun has more rights than a woman's vagina, you know, that the federal government can't dictate environmental, you know, clean water or clean air, you know, and, 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 I mean, you know, the list as well as I do, and and yet we do have a moment where we can act. Can't at this point in time just sit on the sidelines and watch it. Well, this, we, this, we have to, this, 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 to me, this coming midterm, not the 2024 presidential election, no, but, the midterm li- but the literally term. four yeah. months from now, the midterm, it's everything. It's it's that um, uh, great line with Raymond Massey who points at the end of that uh, wonderful 1930s movie um, – of things to come. And he said, it's either the stars or oblivion. Literally the midterms are the stars are oblivion for this experiment called the United States of America. 
And it all depends on how people are motivated right, to do two, the one thing things. they can do, which is vote. Two things, because, because I'm, I'm out at the top of the hour or the bottom or whatever the hour is. But there's two things. Number one, when we talk about cycles, Pluto is a 248-year cycle. Um, actually, because of the precession of the equinox, it's really 246 years. I don't want to get into the technical piece of that. The fact of the matter is that the United States is experiencing its Pluto return. People experience Saturn returns at 29. We would experience a Pluto return if we lived to be 246 years old. Mm -hmm. Right now, Pluto is back in the same place in the sky where it was when the United States was born. Pluto is the planet of the underworld, of death, of regeneration, of transformation. That's part of what's going on nationally. Secondly, and finally, the chart for this coming election day um, in November in the United States is one of the most crazy, unstable charts I've ever seen in my entire life as an astrologer. Uh, we can dig into this some future show, but it is a full moon eclipse lined up with Uranus. Oh, Donald Trump is a full moon eclipse lined up with Uranus, too. Mm. Um, I don't know what that means yet. I don't know where it's going. I think these wide swings are way too early to call. It depends on who's willing to stand up, who's willing to speak the truth, and who's willing to just go to sleep and hope that it'll all get better, and it won't. You know what's so interesting is that um, I've been watching Liz Cheney very carefully. Yeah. Liz Cheney, as a normal, regular conservative Republican, probably – I disagree with her on 98% of her policy positions. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. Me too. A solid 98%. But I would be willing to vote for her for president of the United States. Why? Because she has, because she's, because she has integrity. She has character. She's yeah. a real person who is following the precepts that I grew up with. Yeah, and I, even though I we, have Richard, Richard, like you, I have no problem with people who disagree with me. I have problem with people who lie about it and who are cheats, you know, and who are delusional and bring people down a delusional path. No, I totally, I, I mean, I totally am pretty much against, I mean, Liz Cheney immediately said, congratulations on the Supreme Court abortion ruling. She thought that was fantastic. And pretty much everything about her politics makes me sick, except for the fact that she has integrity. Yeah. Which I and, think is more than her dad. <laughs> uh, well, that's a whole other Dick Cheney conversation. Okay, look, we're about five minutes at the top of the hour. Yeah. I wanted to bring George on a little early because I knew you had to duck out. Can you hang around for like five or ten minutes after the top of the hour so we have a kind of a segue? Because there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. Yes, but her. I will not let that ten minutes go into an hour. Yes. God, you're I a can't. tough taskmaster. God. No, I, I can't. I can't. Okay. I'm, I'm pushing my voice already okay all right all right we've got four minutes uh what should we wrap up before we bring georgia on well um uh we talked about mercury retrogrades earlier and interestingly enough we have um mars turning retrograde on october 30th a week before election day oh my 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 and what will that so do not only, what not will only that do election day on a full moon that morning but it's also conjunct Uranus and square Saturn, and Mars is... So retrograde. what does that do? 
Well, I think it'll make it, I, I, I think it elevates the urgency and the importance around this. I think yeah, that- but wait, wait. If Gokulan discovered that Mars is key as a rising sign in certain professions, yeah. what does a Mars retrograde where this planet is moving in our frame backwards optically well, I, geometrically? I think that there'll be a lot of I think there'll be a lot of angry words. I think we'll see a first wave of this the end of the month. July, July started with an astrological bombshell, um, not necessarily physical material. And July ends, the last few days of July, first few days of August. I don't know what will go down, but something will go down. And I think that as uh, we approach Election Day, I think the anger, when Mars turns retrograde, um, the, the angry words, even the potential for violence goes up. That doesn't mean there will be violence. Look, there's violence every damn day. Um, but um, But I think that we have to remember that we can look at this chart and go, oh, this chart is bad, or oh, this chart is good. Well, what's bad for one person is good for another person. You know, when it rains, that's a horrible day for me to go to the beach with my suntan lotion, <laughs> but it's a great day for the ducks to go hang out at the beach because there's no humans there. Well, in every so, economy, you've got winners and losers, the zero-sum game. You know, the stock market goes up, some people make money, yeah, other people... Exactly. It's, so, it, it's always a zero-sum game in 3D. Exactly. So I don't know whether this election day will be for my belief system, which is probably fairly similar to yours. Um, I don't know whether it'll be a good day or a bad day. I just know it's going to be a powerful day that will resonate for a long time. Well, I've got a couple of ideas, but we're going to have to wait until we do them on the other side because we're at the top of the hour. and We don't want to blow past our break. My guest this morning is Rick Levine, who is gracefully exiting out one door as George Lambert is gracefully entering through another. These, of course, are hyperdimensional doorways. You're on the other side of midnight, and we're, we're tackling why is this time different? Why is this? Why do we have this feeling? And every mainstream anchor keeps saying, well, this is unprecedented. This has never happened before. This is never, in other words, it's becoming a cliche that, what we're going through, we haven't gone through, certainly in our lives, and not even in the life of the country or maybe even current contemporary 6,000 years of history. And that gets us into procession and that gets us into long cycles and when everything, all the nodal points kind of bunch up together. Anyway, to be continued momentarily, you're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. 
join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. If I understand Rick correctly, we're on some kind of cosmic countdown between now and the election, the midterm, the big one. We don't make it through the midterm. Nothing else is going to matter because the system will be locked up and you can look at all the analyses, the politicos, the people on Capitol Hill, the newspapers, the social media, everybody is thinking that this midterm is an incredibly important dividing line between past history, what we've thought of as something under our control and something that will be totally out of our control unless we show up and make a decision, make a lot of decisions. So let me welcome Georgia Lambert. Georgia, are you with us now? I am. And what Rick back. Hello, Georgia. Hello, Rick. Nice to almost see you again. <laughs> I know. I've I've got a quick question for you before you bug out. Yeah, I wanted you guys to kind of exchange some thoughts, and then I'm going to throw something into the mix, and uh, we will go from there. So go ahead. Well, the esoteric model is that we're going to have a pretty uphill rough time until after 2025. And then in 26 and 27, there's a possibility if humanity can grab it of huge openings and expansions in consciousness. And I'd like to know if the astrology supports that. It does. I mean, we could dig in uh, deeper But basically, you know, we're coming out of a period of crazy conjunctions and squares and oppositions, and we move into the 25, 6, 7 period of time, and a lot of those same planets turn into trines, which actually show a flow of energy rather than a stagnation or a conflict. conflict. Gotcha. Mm. Oh, that's encouraging. Okay, let's let's bring it back closer to home. Let's think between now and the midterms, which is uh, I think it's what November eighth this year. I'm I'm probably wrong on that. It oscillates back and forth by a few days. Um, you you say there's going to be this extraordinary confluence of alignments, full moon, uh, Pluto in the position to exert its return how did by the way how did pluto develop all these very negative dark uh, associations other than the fact that it was so far out there that nobody could see it and it was you know lowell thought it would be nice to 
kind of name it after the god of the underworld because it's dark out there or it's perceptually darker than it is in the inner solar system but where did all this the other outer, mythos come each of the outer planets seem to have been discovered and then looked at and then integrated by careful observation and for whatever reason both neptune and pluto seem to be seem to have been named arbitrarily or not uh conducive to what they do i think uranus is the outlier um, it's been suggested that Uranus might have been better correctly, more correctly called Prometheus. Um, regardless, um, you know, Pluto isn't just the underworld. It's everything that's not here. It's everything underground. And in ancient times, that was also wealth. We live in a plutocracy. You know, uh, Pluto is about the, the trends. Um, uh, uh, it's about the uh, changing, the transformation that occurs in, let's say, Jungian-type therapy when you go into the underworld, into the unconscious, and you confront those forces there, you work with them, and then transform, in effect, the alchemical lead into gold. Pluto is not just bad, although it was discovered during the time of um, the rise of mass fascism and the events leading you know, into you know, World War II. So that's where Pluto gets its negativity from. Each of the outer planets, when they were discovered, were thought to be horrific. And then as time went on, as we began to integrate them, they became um, more even keeled. So Pluto is not, a, so Pluto's not an easy energy, but it's not all negative. So would it be more appropriate to think of it as a change agent and the direction, the sign, is back to what George and I have talked about a million times This is a time of choosing, of choice. Yeah, I think so. But again, the thing about Pluto is that the change is incredibly slow. It's like the change of a tsunami or earthquake versus the change of a glacier. Okay, but that return has to mean something. There's a there's a nodal point. Oh yeah, well look at look at what it's meaning. I mean, for the first time in in since the beginning of this country, it looks like the country itself may be in jeopardy. That's indicative of a Pluto return. It's in the balance. It's in the mix. It's in the conversation. Yeah, it, is, it is. And and uh, so, um, George, while we have Rick with us, what were the other things that kind of resonated that um, you wanted to talk about or ask? Because I have one I want to ask. Well, you go ahead and, and ask yours. That was the main question I had for Rick. But certainly the conversation's been fascinating, and I'd love to weigh in on the feedback loop idea oh isn't that an amazing idea gosh it's it's totally consistent with the consciousness model because uh, you you know we we know that that human attention can uh, determine the behavior of subatomic particles right Uh, yes so so what's going to happen when you have a whole bunch of people focusing on the same thing over yes. and over, it's going to affect the force field. The, yes. other thi- the other thing is that in the early days of radio and TV, there was limited channels, so everybody was having the same experience, and mm. everybody was directing their thought along the similar lines. Very important. Like, yeah. Cre- creating a similar effect. Now we've got all kinds of different uh, news stations, realities, and everybody is all cattywampus and creating their own realities that are overlapping one another and causing havoc. 
So how do you get coherence in that kind of a system, Rick? Um, uh, instantaneous emergency. You mean yeah. some big overwhelming event that goes viral? I don't care what you watched yesterday. I don't care what news station you're watching. Holy shit, look what's happening right now. Oh, my God, we're all experiencing this at the same time. Well, the only thing that I think is big enough, boys and girls, is the discovery that we're not alone, that there's folks out there. That may be. It's the only thing I can think of, which, of course, is why I'm very intrigued that President Biden in the Oval Office on one of the bookcases to the left of the uh, you know, um, desk is this little glass case with an artifact brought back from the moon by the astronauts and specifically requested by the Biden White House to be displayed in the Oval Office uh, to the left of the Resolute Desk. And it looks like a octahedron, a double long pyramid with four sides on top and four sides on the bottom. And it's bizarre that it's sitting there almost like it's waiting for its time to be brought out in show and tell. And the fact that we are not alone, we have relatives, we are living in an incredibly ancient inhabited place. All those moving objects that influence us hyperdimensionally once had people on them. And some may still have somebody on them. We're not sure about that. But in other words, that is to me, the biggest paradigm shattering shift which can occur, which will supersede all of the other timescales and be the thing people will be riveted on in real time, simultaneously, all over the planet at the same moment. And that would entrain everybody's consciousness toward the same direction. Which then means the war will be what does this contact mean? Is it positive? Or as we always react to the others, will they be enemies? Will they be negative? Will they be in In other words, it's well, the spin. The, the, the thing is that we talked about humanity making choices right now. The choices that we make are going to determine whether our first contact is going to be the Vulcans or the Romulans. <laughs> Very good. So, all right. No, so, so listen. <clears throat> Um, the aliens land and they're really kind and gentle and sweet and they set up a meeting with some religious leaders and the Pope steps forward and says, I want to know one thing, um, you know, has your planet experienced Jesus Christ? And the alien says, yeah, he stops by our planet every couple of years. <laughs> and the Pope says every couple of years, he, has, he, has, he came here 2,000 years ago. Um, and, and the alien said, well, maybe you gave him bad chocolate. Chocolate? And the alien says, yeah, he loves chocolate. We always give him the best chocolate, and he comes back every couple years. What did you give him? Mm. (laughs) Well, there was this cross thing. No, but I'm just saying that because that that basically is – I agree with, you know, know, George is saying that, you know – where where we are at will depend who, who we meet. Okay, here's the question I want to ask with both of you in the room. We currently have undergone this extraordinary setback. The first rights of half the population arbitrarily taken away by fiat by the Supreme Court, and suddenly women are not equal to men in every sense, including practically. So 
why is this juncture in history coming now? Because, according to a very large contingent of right-wing political uh, people, um, aborting a fetus in some laws in some states down to the level of the cell is a mortal sin, is murder, is killing a nascent human being. Therefore, it cannot even be allowed if the mother, the other life form in the room, is going to die so the kid the cell can be born. That's where we are right now. Why, Rick, in astrology, is the clock started not from the moment that that cell gathers itself to become life, but nine months later, give or take, when the child is born? Um, I don't have a quick and easy answer for that. Obviously, Something happens around awareness as uh, pre prenatal, but it's not until the individual baby um, is separate from the mother's force field, whatever that might be, that it gets imprinted with whatever it is um, you know, from the cosmos. Um, you know, if that sounds sketchy enough, I can't do anything. No, better. it actually is very much in line with what I'm thinking because it's very simple in, in our model. Before the baby, the fetus, clears the mother's amniotic fluids, it's immersed in water, and water is an incredible torsion screen. That's right. It's like a Faraday cage. The baby has to be outside of the mother's physical water of the womb in order for the transfer of consciousness hyperdimensionally to occur. So if this model is correct, Every one of those animated videos of embryos and, and you know, fetuses in wombs moving in 3D color television imagery, all that is is a vessel waiting to receive its imprint that does not happen, does not make it a person until birth. And if that model alone could be accepted, then all of this nonsense around birth and death and abortion, and you're killing a kid, all that goes away because there is no kid to kill until birth. Do do you know that there is a court case that arose last week? A woman is filing suit, um, and I think this is in North Dakota, I'm not sure, but this woman was given a ticket. She's a pregnant woman driving in a carpool lane, and her claim was that the the rationale or the uh, judgment of the Supreme Court said that the baby is a viable being and therefore there were two people in the car and she was ticketed for driving in the, in the car. <laughs> no, I'm not making this up. This is real. Oh my God. The commuter lane, the speed, whatever they call it in various cities. Yeah. And this is, this is pending before a real court. Well, well, the case has been filed. Yeah. Well, that's going to be one hell of a gosh. Yeah. One could almost as an amicus curiae, a friend of the court, submit a paper that no, that is not a person in that womb until it's born. Okay, guys, carry on. I got to go. Okay. Thank you, Rick. Well, Good Georgia. Always a pleasure. Good always a pleasure. Rick. Okay. <laughs> Hi, Georgia. Hi, Richard. Okay. Good night, Rick. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're finally alone. 
<laughs> Not yet. I'm trying to figure out how to get out of here. <laughs> we we need we you need get. to have we need to have T-shirts that say. Look like a particle, behave as a wave. Oh, now like that's not bad. Like Maybe All God right, is I'm, trying to tell you you're not supposed to leave yet. Uh, well, <laughs> then, then, then deal with this. Ah, <laughs> <sighs> uh, okay. So, what did we leave on the cutting room floor that we want to, in the next forty-five minutes, uh, kind of cover? You, you said that you, that you found the earlier conversation interesting. What about this idea of a feedback loop that's never yeah. existed, which in fact is interfering with the force, interfering with the transmissions, causing all kinds of mayhem and chaos and unmodeled effects? Well, as I said, I think that's perfectly logical because human attention affects the force field. And if human attention is all over the board, so is the impression of the force field. Well, I think what he was saying is that because we have recording media, an event which will have a striking, like 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 striking a bell, like a note. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It has a delayed, continuous ringing, which causes like, all like, kinds of people to come asynchronously to the same epiphany. But why does that result in chaos as opposed to? coherence, strengthening of the underlying message. Because the intent is different. It's like, you know, instead of throwing rocks in the exact same place from a bridge into the water, you've got rocks going everywhere, each creating their own field as as the ripples move out and the ripples are interfering with one another and it's causing a lot of chaos. And I think you're absolutely right that only a major event, whether that be disclosure or visiting or some huge natural disaster or something uh, is the only thing that's going to entrain humanity to pay attention to the same thing again. Hmm. So we need a big event that focuses everybody's attention on something simple, something elegant, something in consonance with who we like to think we are. I don't know. Well, many... ideally, ideally. Go ahead. But you, you know, there's there, you know there's going to be uh, you know uh, resistance from certain crystallized religious quarters and things like that. But. Um, just like, you know, the moon landing or any of the other examples that you gave, um, if something's big enough, it's going to rivet human attention. And for that moment, human attention is going to be coherent. Well, then it depends on the conditioning because, you know, we've been brought up on all those grade B movies, you know, invaders, etc. If extraterrestrials do appear or they're, um, presence is officially acknowledged. And, of course, Bassa thinks it has to be the president that does it. I'm not quite so sure. Um, there is that question mark. Are they here to help or are they here to eat? Remember, to serve man? <laughs> serve man, yes. Yeah. I know. So well, I, I think a lot has to do with the choices that we make because the choices that we collectively make will put us collectively in resonance with one or more possibilities. Okay, give me give me a couple of examples. 
Well, like I said, you know, is it going to be the Vulcans or the Romulans? It depends on the kind of choices we make as to what kind of people we want to be. You know, are, are we going to focus as the soul and one human family, or are we going to focus in a gazillion little splinter identities uh, that are fighting one another and are not making that leap in consciousness that sees the next step. And those forces that will keep us crystallized in the old power structure, um, that's what we're going to attract. Like attracts like. And, and uh, uh, you know, if if that's the kind of choice we make, then that's going to put us in resonance with a particular outcome. See, here's the thing that I wanted to ask Rick with you here that I couldn't ask before. The other thing, there were two things. Um, he's, he's, he's noting that October is when Mars goes retrograde, which is just before the midterm election in, in, in November. Right. And then he was saying he didn't really know what effect that would have well what i need to ask and maybe if he's listening and he can call back in because we can you know click a switch and he can be back with us the the biggest thing in that window that i think could trigger all kinds of very weird negative effects would be the war in ukraine if there's an affinity between the meme of mars warlike planet of war that kind of thing more military people uh, born with Mars in the ascendant, that kind of thing, which is the Gokulan study. And he said the noise to signal ratio was very, very high. In other words, huge signal there, unmistakable, a correlation. Well, if that's a correlation kind of in the ether, this war in Ukraine that people are saying is going to go on and on and on. No, I see it has an endpoint, And the time frame for the fall from metonymic considerations, analyses, you know, where the Russians are, the personnel they're losing, the uh, problems of, of uh, supply and, and uh, you know, ammunition replenishment and Putin's mindset, all of this, the state of the economy of the descending Russian sphere because of all the sanctions, it's all going to kind of hit the fan in that time frame mm-hmm. with the Mercury retrograde. In other words, are we really poised on the edge of the unthinkable because Putin keeps shaking his nuclear weapons every chance he gets? Will it all reach this crescendo when Mars goes uh, cattywampus? Well it's, well, it's not only that uh, with, with, uh, with Mars, it's the cycle of the year. You know, we've talked about this before that the, juice for the year comes in at the spring and then it works its way down and it begins to land in the fall because that's when it starts to affect humanity's concrete mind and emotions, particularly the the emotions, which is why a lot of wars start in the fall anyway. It's not just, you know, that as well as huge as huge stock market uh, crashes because it's basically fear based. It's about emotion. Exactly. And so it's really hitting humanity's astral body or emotional nature. This is not giving me a warm and fuzzy feeling here. But, but, but the the good side of it 
is that it's also the cycle of empowerment for those with intent because this is the cycle of manifestation for good or ill as we move into the fall and the anchoring at winter solstice. So this time of the year, yeah, a lot of crappy stuff happens because that's where humanity is focused. But if the people of goodwill around the planet uh, focus at this particular time, they can affect the field so that the manifestation that we get is conducive to our next step in consciousness rather than keeping us in in the, the soup. Well, there's a very metonymic, very grounded, very real world uh, decision point coming up, which is the midterm election. And you can bet your you know dollars in navy beans that all over the world, people are going to be tracking uh, what happens in the midterms in terms of the House and the Senate because that will determine whether the Biden administration gets to do other things it wants to do, or there's going to be the encumbrance of these two senators that keep saying they're Democrats and they frankly act much more like Republicans. And if it weren't for those two, if we had two more, uh, the, the Democrats could change the rules, get rid of the filibuster, enact a whole bunch of things that over the long term would radically transform the economy and the lives of ordinary people and their consciousness, which is connected to how their day-to-day lives are unraveling and, you know, just giving them nightmares. Right. So that's a pragmatic choice. So kind of like an echo of 2018, where even though he wasn't on the ballot, an awful lot of people in the midterms were voting against Trump. That's why uh, Nancy got the House back. And, and why, you know, in the election, we got basically a 50-50 Senate because of consciousness wanting to make another choice. If enough people are motivated to go out and vote, just in their own self-interest in, in November, this could be enough right-thinking people standing up for their rights in all those various uh, permutations and making choice that will have incredible positive echoes for the future. Well, we always have that possibility. Humanity always has the choice of learning through joy rather than through pain and suffering, but it's, it's rarely a choice that we make for whatever reason. Um, yes, I think that, that, you know, we could make a huge turnaround. However, um, my sense of things is that it's going to get rockier before it gets better. Oh, you're so encouraging. Darn. It's, it's like that line that Betty Davis delivered. It's going to be a bumpy ride <laughs> until, until the crest of 2025. And, and, and then um, I, th- I think we're in for a rough time. You know, in, earlier you, you guys were talking about free will and or fate and you know it's it's relative you you the cells on the back of your hand are little lives that have their own rhythms of reproduction and cell division and you know getting nutrients and all of that and and they have their own little rhythms but if you decide to go to the grocery store that cell's going to go with you (laughs) you know one would hope so um 
you know, humanity makes choices and exerts its will, but those choices are within the bigger cycles of the planet and the solar system and so on and so on. But yeah, sometimes so it's, it's it just takes a little tweak, like this mission going to the moon that's having little tweaks every couple, three weeks, and it will have an extraordinary effect because the tweaks are in perfect time resonance. So we've got a half hour ahead of us. Uh, if you want to call in, um, I'll try to answer some questions. Georgia will obviously answer questions and, uh, I'll try to, you know, synthesize Rick's uh, answers so uh, we will have an interesting discussion. I'll give out the numbers when we return. We're trying to grapple with the big, big picture, and I think what's come out of tonight so far is this fall is really, really going to be determinative. We are, as I said earlier, on a countdown, a hyper-dimensional countdown, which frankly could result in the disillusion of this grand experiment called the United States. And if that sounds hyperbolic and over the top and uh, totally nuts, you have not been paying attention. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. TheOtherSideOfMidnight.com A circle in a spiral Like a wheel within a wheel Never ending or beginning On an ever-spinning reel Like a snowball down a mountain Or a carnival balloon Like a carousel that's turning Running rings around the moon Like a clock whose hands are swinging Past the minutes of its face And the world is like an apple Whirling silently in space Like the circles that you find In the windmills of your And welcome back on this Sunday night, Monday morning here. 
in the land of enchantment with an almost full moon. I said in our promo for tonight's show, this is one of my favorite songs because it encapsulates the idea of all these various rhythms, these cycles, these metronomes, these celestial markers of our lives and our consciousness. And this year, this fall, this November, this election, this expression of Americans' precious right of free choice is all ensnared in the circles and the windmills of our mind. Of your mind Keys that jingle in your pocket Words that jangle in your head Why did summer go so quickly? Was it something that you said? Lovers walk along a shore And leave their footprints in the sand It's the sound of distant drumming Just the fingers of your hand Pictures hanging in a hallway and the fragment of a throne Half-remembered names and faces But to whom do they belong? When you knew that it was over You were suddenly aware That the autumn leaves were turning To the color of his hair Like a circle in a spiral, like a wheel within a wheel, never ending or beginning on an ever spinning reel. As the images unwind, like the circles that you find. In the windmills of your mind. That song, Georgia perfectly encapsulates for me the time we're in. Exactly. And can, can I give you a couple of examples um, of what we've been talking about in terms of, you know, the event that could galvanize humanity's attention and the timing of it. Um, and the two examples are, number one, if you've got a bowl, bowl with mud at the bottom and it's filled with water and your job is to get the mud out, you could take a spoon and try to get it out that way, but you'd never get it all because you'd stir up the mud at the bottom every time you put the spoon in the water. What you have to do is turn on the tap water, hold the bowl under the tap, allow everything to be flushed out, not chicken out and pull your bowl away, um, but be strong, be strong enough and brave enough to keep it under the tap water until everything gets flushed clean, mm. which means that you've got to go through a certain amount of chaos. Most people aren't comfortable doing that because we confuse the good, the true, and the beautiful with the pretty, the comfortable, and the nice. 
And so we pull our bowl away and nothing gets resolved and the stuff settles to the bottom and we have to deal with it all over again. The other example is that in the esoteric model, there is a different kind of fire of matter than consciousness. The fire of matter is considered kundalini fire or fire by friction, which implies duality because you got to have two things to fricked against each other to have friction. <laughs> fricked. Fricked and fricked. Yeah. Okay. The fire of consciousness is the blue-white light of the soul or the Christ. So how do you get fire that is ruddy and golden and hot and dualistic to merge with the blue-white light of the soul? There's only one place where that mergence can take place. And that is, if you take an iron bar and you put it in a furnace and you turn up the heat, that bar begins to glow, first cherry red and then orange and then yellow, and then it becomes white hot. And when it reaches that white stage, that white is in resonance with the white of the soul, and that's the moment for divine intervention. And it's very tricky because if you can't bring in divine intervention too soon because the mud settles back in the bowl. You can't bring it in too late because the iron bar will melt in the furnace. It has to be right at the top of that moment. So that chaos, that difficulty, that uncomfortability has to reach that peak where humanity can be open to something completely different. But in order to be open, they have to know it exists. And it's so interesting. Uh, last night we had Scott Walter on the show, um, yeah. who is the very famous archaeologist, geologist, who had this wonderful history program, America Unearthed. Uh, he led a tour, which Barbara Honiger was on in Scotland a few weeks ago. And I'd kind of made this deal that we would spend most of the time talking about the Templars and the tour and the background <laughs> To Scotland, I think I need some water here. Okay. Rick is not the only one who can't talk this late at night. <laughs> so everything was going along great. And then I showed Scott these images, these striking, stunning images that our audience has overwhelmingly uh, told us an email. Well, they're artificial. They're obviously made by somebody. And this is a guy who's been approached by the inner levels of the DOD to be some kind of juror or arbiter or um, not spokesperson is too out there. It's more like a, like a, like, like a member of a jury to bring his expertise to the whole idea of UFOs. We're not alone and all that. And when, when I, when I look at this kind of in, in objectivity, why would you bring in the Scott Walter to the UFO disclosure crowd? Well, obviously if artifacts, artifacts on other planets are going to be part of the conversation. Otherwise, it makes no sense at all. You could you could do a random, you know, kidnap someone on the street if you want a outside point of view. But the fact that for two years now, someone has been cozying up to Scott to get him to, you know, be part of a review panel or jury or grand, grand jury of the validity of this information tells me, and I really was kicking myself because I didn't say it on the show last night. 
It's obvious, Scott, why they were talking to you, because there's artifacts you're going to have to make a decision on. Well, mm-hmm. I showed him some artifacts, and it was so interesting because instantly it became, well, they're interesting, but they're on Mars, so they can't be real. They can't be artificial. Yeah. And, he, and he gave us all these excuses, and Barbara chimed in with all the, sphin- all the uh, pyramids that are lining the, the highway around Luxor, I think. And she said they're all, she was told they were all formed by nature. No, that was a lie. Whoever told her that was a lie because the, the ability of wind erosion to craft a beautiful tetrahedral form or a four-sided pyramidal form is so rare. But the wisdom has it that, oh, this is easily accessible in any geological landscape. You'll find all these pyramids formed by the wind. Not wrong a lie and yet experts and i count scott as an expert looked at those stunning precise geometrically exact pyramids there next to the so-called car and he said aligning himself with barbara well they can be created by nature and i'm thinking to myself if they if we hadn't told them where the images were taken if they did not know, which has been the, our other test, where people don't know, where there is kind of like a double blind, where the author doesn't know and the audience doesn't know, and they're just shown pictures, and then afterward it's revealed, oh, they were taken on Mars, overwhelmingly in seeing these objects in these images from NASA, the vote of ordinary people is, well, they're artificial. And it's only when they find out where they are that things get weird. If that's not telling us something about context and programming and expectation, then nothing would be telling us that. And that's where this huge event, if it's going to have the catalytic effect on consciousness that I believe it can have and Rick believes and I think you do too, it's got to be managed really, really well or it's going to fizzle. It's going to absolutely be stillborn. It ain't going to be a squeak and a whatever my grandmother would have said. <laughs> well, I think that's true. But even if it's overwhelming, you, you're going to have a small percentage of people that will look at a white crow and see a seagull. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. All right. But but it's it's not the small percentage. It's like a huge percentage, when they find out where this stuff is, they automatically turn off. And that's what I find so fascinating and frustrating simultaneously, because how do we get them to remain turned on at the stunning possibilities and probabilities if we follow that future road? Well, if you can figure that one out. No, wait a minute. The You're bank. the guest. I'm just the host. <laughs> You're the one that's supposed to come with the hyperdimensional metaphysical answer. Look, we've got 15 whole minutes here. We can talk about anything we want to. Where do you want to go that they won't let us talk about? Well, you know, the, the thing about thought is that a clear, precise thought uh, has more weight in terms of affecting the force than a vague, fuzzy semi-thought. You right. mean you mean a coherence? Yeah. Okay. So it, it, we're not talking about quantity. We're talking about quality. 
And so if there are enough clear thinkers around the planet, it doesn't matter their numbers. It matters the weight that they can put to the force. Yeah, I've said that before. It only takes 2%, you know, using that number from the revolution because most of the country didn't want to separate from the king and didn't want to, you know, uh, you know throw the tea into the harbor and didn't want to have a constitution, et cetera, et cetera. But here we are. So it doesn't take everybody. It only takes... But it's like, it's like that old Marin joke I've told a million times. How many psychiatrists does it take in Marin County, Northern California, to change a light bulb? Only one. But the light bulb has to want to change. <laughs> Obviously, you hadn't heard that one. Okay. So people in a normal, diffused general population they have a million wants and desires and goals and objectives and all that. From my experience, the bad guys, even if they're few, they're very focused, dedicated, yes. fanatical. They're, they've honed their message with laser beam precision. They're coherent. They're, they've got their act together. They are dangerous not because of, of what they believe, but because of how fanatically they believe it. And all you have to do yeah. is look at this extraordinary real-life adventure of Donald Trump and the effort to steal the country out from under us, right in front of our bare eyes. They had this incredible multi-layered plan to steal the country, and a third of the country doesn't give a damn. Well, I think that that's true, that, that you know... I mean, look at the planning that it took for decades to overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, people you know, are saying that. It was a concerted effort. I'm not, sure I, I'm not sure I buy that. I know that they talked about the 50 years and the, you know, the Federalist Society and the, the judges and all of the long-term. Americans don't plan long-term. I don't care whether you're good guys, bad guys, indifferent guys. Americans just don't plan long-term. I think, because you see, the rational political pundits are looking at this, and they have to explain the white crow. They have to explain, after centuries of progressive increasing the amount of rights to American citizens, suddenly, with a stroke of a pen and a foreshadowing leak, you get an incredible step backward for half the population, and it happens just like that. Now... The rational opinion people are trying to explain this, and they say, oh, it was court packing, it was long-term planning, it was you know, the, the Koch brothers funding, all of these real-world, three-dimensional, very logical, very rational, very left-brain explanations. I have something much simpler. The physics. It's part of this larger gestalt about femininity, consciousness, mm -hmm. procreation, the time in the cycle where we're making huge decisions that will affect the next 26,000 years. I don't think if anybody had packed any court, the, the, the decision would have been different because this decision is being mandated from a hyper-dimensional level. Something has reached into the nursery and is trying to rig the game now because now is the only time they could rig it when all these nodes, all these cycles are crossing. You have a caller, Stephen, on hold. Oh, good. Why don't we go to Stephen? You want to do that, Georgia? Sure. Okay. 
Stephen, I I need to open a pot probably. Okay, let us do this, and here we are. Stephen, are you with us? Oh, I need to do that. Sorry. Okay. You there? There we are. Okay. We can hear you, Stephen. We can hear you, Stephen. Stephen from Clearwater, Florida. Yeah. Super. Uh, um, I was wondering if you, if one thing that has always impressed me when I've looked at astrology is how Uranus can make such a sudden change, whereas other planets take months, years, weeks. And I'm wondering if that tilt, of th- that extreme tilt that Uranus has, might have an effect at causing it to make a sudden, sudden changes in things instead of the other planets. You planets. get the gold star of the morning. <laughs> No, Stephen, you're exactly right. And I just wish that I had figured out the whole torsion uh, field mechanism with the Accutron to be able to measure Uranus when the poles were aimed toward the center of the solar system. We were in the beam, the polarized beam of torsion field emanation from Uranus because it is almost tipped. on. It's actually tipped on its side. It's actually below the 90 degree point. So it rotates backwards because of that. Uh, 102, 110 degrees, something like that. So yeah, you're absolutely right. Uranus would be would modulate very differently than any of the other planets. And darn it, I wish Rick was around so we could put it to him. Well, yes, and also it, when when uh, when a planet is rising, would the torsion fields be different depending on the configuration of its moons at the current time? In other words, would Jupiter have a slightly different torsion effect on the Earth? depending on how its moons were oriented around it, then, then let's say maybe two hours later when the moons had changed. Are you a, are you a secret hyperdimensional astrologer? Because, yes, the configuration... And, and in fact, there's a guy, I'm trying to remember his name, he published a series of papers as an alternate to the standard physics model, and he invokes what he calls the shout as an energy wave coming from Jupiter at certain times because of the changing configuration of the four big Galilean satellites. So you're, you're batting a hundred so far. Well, I want to tell you, Richard, that uh, I've, I've listened to you for 30 years and there's been times where I've been hope homeless and down and, and, and been sort of down on my luck for maybe years at a time. And I have, you know, I'd lay out there on the park with my little, transistor radio and you let me know that the world's a lot more wonderful than it seemed to me personally at the time and i i want to thank you for everything you've done for so many people well thank you thank you uh do you want to ask georgia anything i mean you have this rare opportunity a practicing <laughs> metaphysician how many of those can you yes, bag I'm, well i'm wondering if if, if oh, how did she, how does how does she think uh, the, the, how does she feel that, like for instance, the Supreme Court? I want to ask her this because I, you have, I know your opinion. The Supreme Court actually, in this decision on abortion, gave power back to the people by sending it back to the states to make up the mind through their legislatures and things. Do you see it that way? I do. I think it's the the Supreme Court. We always think of government trying to grab power. But they actually said we're not going to make a we're not we didn't shouldn't have made a decision on this. We're going to give it back to the people. I just wondered what okay. you think. Uh, Georgia, you answer, and then I've got a, a practical answer for Stephen. 
Go ahead. Well, I see things from a, a, a completely different perspective. Um, I Politically, I'm an independent, um, and I think that it's been necessary for all of these areas of contention to rise to the surface so they can be sorted out. Uh, and I think that, um, you know, what we're seeing is part of the process working itself out uh, because a lot of these attitudes um, have been simmering under the surface for decades and decades and decades, and it's now time to excise everything, deal with it, and uh, that's the only way we're going to go forward. So um, it's it's a terrible thing, and it's very unfortunate uh, for women, but in the long run, it's going to get sorted out. Well, again, it can get sorted out in the midterm election because if you have enough senators, you simply put Roe versus Wade into, into you know, black letter law. You don't need an, a kind of an iffy, squishy interpretation of privacy and all that by the court. It simply is there in black and white that women have a right to, to their bodies, et cetera, and all the concomitant you know, health, health uh, concerns thereof. Let me, Stephen, let me address your your question, because at, at, at a theoretical level, I agree with you. The, the, the closer government is, representative government is to the people it represents, kind of like a, a, you know, rule one, all right? The problem mm-hmm. is, for the last several decades, the Republicans have rigged the game through something called gerrymandering, which the Supreme Court specifically did not want to intrude in so all these Republican legislatures, which have created these bizarre, you know, fish scale and salamander and uh, uh, cucaracha shaped districts where you basically disenfranchise anybody but Republicans, they wound up to where those states are controlled now. And the odds of an even fair election where you have more votes, uh, win more seats, that kind of thing is absolutely non-existent. So the game has been rigged. So what the court did, the Republican court tossed this back to the Republican state legislatures so that women in those states are permanently disenfranchised, not just in terms of abortion, but you're going to see conception. You're going to see marriage. You're going to, in other words, there is no end to the avarice and greed of this particular political contingent. And they have nothing to do with preserving rights. They have to do with taking power and nakedly preserving it for their own. And that's really the thing about the resistance of the patriarchal society to moving into this next age, which will be one of balance. That's an interesting answer. We'll call again. We got about well, four minutes. The only thing go is, ahead. I just have an opinion on this because I was adopted. And the chances are that if my mother had not been a Catholic and had such a strong opinion against abortion, I probably wouldn't exist. So there's a lot of us in that position. Wait, 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 wait. You wouldn't exist in this cycle. To me, the science is moving rapidly, and I don't know. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that. That's really cool. I would have been in another cycle. Exactly. We don't get one shot. I never thought of that. Real date. This is why the whole abortion thing is so insane. Because it's it's the woman. If you miss this train, there's that train. (laughs) 
when a woman says no, she's not saying no to that oh incoming door. She's saying not through this door at this time. That is so beautiful. It's beautiful that you said that. I never thought of that in all my life. I, I It's just, oh, well, thank you. I, you've done a lot for me just by saying that. And that is one of those high points in my radio career. When, when, when you can connect information, Georgia, with someone who has mm-hmm. never thought of it before and goes, no, I never thought oh, of it. my, well, uh, thank you for saying that. And I hope you will call again. And since the program okay. is rapidly winding up, I'm going to uh, say good night and we will talk to you soon. Well, I email you quite a bit, so I hope I'm not annoying you when I do, but I, I just enjoy all. talking. Okay, not God bless. All. Good night, Stephen. Thank, thank night. you, Stephen. Okay, you have got exactly one minute and ten seconds to say something <laughs> profound. Well, the whole abortion thing will not be cleared up by the religious right until scientifically it's proven that we are souls and not just our bodies and that until that is sorted out and a proof of when the soul uh, connects to the body, until that is discovered and known, it's going to be an issue. But you see, if you don't ask the question, you'll never oh, get right. the answer. No one's been asking right. this question. They're all stuck at the level of molecules as opposed to the ether, the field, multidimensionality. And it was so amazing. I really was, was impressed. Stephen is in on this guy because he actually was able to admit live on the air that it doesn't, it, he'd never thought of this. It makes it totally a new ball game. Hey, I want to thank my guests tonight, uh, Rick Levine and Georgia Lambert. And we finally had enough time all to ourselves with Georgia. We'll do this again. So until next week, next weekend, now on Sunday, we're going to be doing ancient structures that exemplify stunning hyperdimensional geometry and mathematics. Saturday is kind of up for grabs. Uh, I'll let you know. And until then, third star on the lace, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone.